Audio Renaissance presents The Christmas Blessing by Donna Van Leer. Read for you by Oliver Wyman. It's Christmas Eve, and the lake in front of me is frozen hard. Snow surrounds the edge, crunching beneath my feet. The sun is beginning to sink, and the trees, heavy with snow, cast long shadows over the paved path that runs along the shore. Several runners make their way around the perimeter. I stand for a few moments in that familiar spot, beneath the giant oak tree, looking out over the smooth surface. I take a deep breath and exhale, leaving faint clouds in the winter air. When I was a boy, my father would wake me early on Saturday mornings, and we'd drive to a lake, much larger than this one, on the outskirts of my hometown, and push our tiny rowboat into the water. We'd row out to our favorite spot and prepare our rods for a morning of fishing. Together, we'd sit in silence and wait for the slightest tug on our lines. My father was convinced that even the smallest noise spooked the fish. But when my father did speak, he'd say, Be patient, Nathan. One will come. Or, Be still, Nathan. Be still. At the end of the day, we'd row back with our catch, and then, as we approached the shore, my father would sometimes tell me about his hopes and dreams and ask me about mine. Even God's smallest plan for us is bigger than any dream we could ever hope for, my father said one morning, pulling the boat onto dry land. I don't know why I have always remembered that moment. Maybe I recall it because there was a time when I was a boy that I'd prayed for a miracle that never came, one that would have saved my mother's life. I was eight years old when she died of cancer during the first morning hours of Christmas Day. Earlier in the evening, I had run to Wilson's department store and bought her a pair of shiny beaded shoes. Looking back, I know they were gaudy and awful, but in my child's mind, I thought she'd look beautiful as she walked into heaven wearing them. I didn't know my mother would die that night, and as I climbed into bed, I prayed again for a miracle. A year earlier, I went with my mother one winter morning to visit my grandparents, who lived high on a hillside. We drove up the winding road that led to their home, and because the trees were naked, as I looked over the bluff at the top, I could see into the valley below. We got out of the car, and my mother took my hand on that cold, windy day and looked down into the valley with me. I liked it better looking up, I said to her. Everything's too little from here. She knelt beside me and drew me close to her side. Time in the valley will teach you to be a man, Nathan. It's where your character will form. I looked down the slope and back to my mother. She laughed when she saw my puzzled face. You can only see small things when you're on top of a mountain. Do you know what I mean, little man? I shook my head. She held my face in her hands. One day you will, I promise but I hope you don't go straight to the top of the mountain, Nathan. I hope you go through the valley first so that you'll learn how to love and feel and understand. And when life wounds you, I hope it's because you loved people, not because you mistreated them. I didn't understand anything my mother was saying. She smiled and kissed me. Always remember that regardless of what happens, Nathan, in the end, there will be joy. I promise. People talk about a defining moment in life. 
I've come to realize that there is no one defining moment, but instead a series of events and circumstances that define who we are. The times with my father on the lake and with my mother overlooking the valley are two such moments. Today, I know that each of us is destined for something, a purpose that often seems muddy or vague at best. We may not discover that purpose in the way that we'd want, but if we are patient long enough, we will catch it in fleeting glimpses. We will see tiny sparks of revelation that push us closer and closer to our destiny. There will be pain, sometimes more than we bargained for. But as my mother promised so many years ago, in the end, there will be joy. Late October 2000 I gunned the engine, pulled the truck out of my parking space, and flew over the speed bumps on my way out of the apartment complex. A young mother grabbed her toddler and gave me a dirty look. I thumped the face of my watch, and the second hand seemed to groan before deciding to move. Too late now, I'll never make it, I thought, glancing at the clock in my dashboard. The tires squealed as I pulled out onto the main road. If I made all the stoplights through town, I could get to the hospital in 15 minutes. Turning into the hospital lot, I glanced at the clock. 14 minutes, a new personal record. I parked and ran for the main entrance. Maybe he hasn't started yet. Who was I kidding? Dr. Getz never failed to start on time. As part of my third year medical rotations, the university had placed me under the tutelage of Dr. Crawford Getz, the best cardiologist in the hospital. Cardiology wasn't part of a normal rotation block, but the university felt that a rotation in cardiology would only enhance a student's studies. So I was stuck for the next four weeks with Dr. Getz. He was a Harvard and Vanderbilt man, the chief of cardiology, father of four, grandfather of two, and a thorn in my flesh. He specialized in pediatric cardiology, but since the hospital had only a small number of child patients a year, as department head, Dr. Getz would also oversee the treatment of adult patients. In each of our rotations, a medical student was part of a team that consisted of an attending physician, three to four students, and an upper-level resident. Peter Vashti was the resident on Dr. Getz's team. My clipboard with the day's rounds was hanging at the nurse's station, the last to be picked up. I checked the room number for the first patient to be seen and ran to catch up, sneaking in behind William Radcliffe, an old friend and fellow student who, to my good fortune, stood 6'5". Dr. Getz was sitting on the patient's bed, a 47-year-old man recovering from open-heart surgery. She's working like a 30-year-old's heart, Dr. Getz said. Does that translate to the rest of his body? The man's wife asked, cracking a wad of gum. Dr. Getz laughed. He had a carefree, easy way with his patients and their families. Too bad that didn't translate to his students. So everything feels normal? Dr. Getz asked, resting his hand on the patient's shoulder. He's cranky again, the wife said, her gum exploding like a firecracker. Is that good or bad? I don't know if it's good or bad, but for him, it's normal, his wife continued. The patient looked sheepish. Poor guy. No wonder he had heart surgery. She was relentless. All right, Jason, Dr. Getz said, smiling. You're ready to go home. 
The man shook Dr. Getz's hand, and I could see his eyes fill with tears. He started to speak, then stopped. Dr. Getz squeezed his shoulder and turned to leave, nodding for us to follow. Who's our next patient? Dr. Getz asked. Andrews? I looked down at the chart in my hands. The patient in room 2201. Mr. Andrews, he said, as if giving a speech to a room of 500. Just as you were not given a number at birth, but a name, you will find that your patients came into the world in the exact same manner. Learn who they are, not where they're located. I could feel sweat break out on my upper lip. I didn't mean it that, I began, but it was too late. And Mr. Andrews, as a reminder, your rotation begins at 6 a.m., not 6.18. I felt my chest tighten. I should have known that Dr. Getz would pick up on my tardiness. During a break in rounds, I retreated to the lounge and sank into the sofa. I leaned my head against the wall and rubbed my temples. If I'd known there was going to be someone like Dr. Getz in my future, I never would have signed up for medical school in the first place. I glanced at my watch and noticed it had stopped running again. I tapped the face, but the second hand wouldn't budge. I took the watch off and flipped it over to thump the battery casing. I ran my finger over the inscription. With all the love in the world, Mom. I remember my father coming into my room during the early morning hours of that Christmas. He said that my mother had stepped into heaven. I ran to the living room where my mother lay still on the hospital bed. My grandmother was holding her hand, weeping. I watched my mother for the longest time, praying she'd move again, that she'd reach for me and say, you need to get back into bed, little man. But she couldn't reach for me, and I knew it. She was 34 years old. Wilson's department store was about to close on that Christmas Eve as I ran from one department to the next looking for the perfect gift, until the shoes caught my eye on a sales rack. I ran them to the front register and pulled a crumpled wad of bills out of my jeans pocket. When the clerk told me I didn't have enough money, I was heartbroken. I turned to a man behind me, and before I knew what was happening, he paid for the shoes, and I ran out the door for home. When I helped my mother unwrap the shoes, she held them to her chest and made me feel as if I'd just handed her heaven itself. We buried her in them. During the last weeks of her life, my mother wrote a series of letters to my sister Rachel and me. In one address to me, she wrote, Dear Nathan, I have had many joys in my life, but none that have compared to you and Rachel. I always want you to know that I fell more in love with you every day. Please don't ever dread Christmas, Nathan, but remember to look for the miracles instead. It may be hard to see them at times, but they will always be there, because Christmas is the season for miracles. With all the love in the world, Mom. Before she died, my mother bought special gifts for Rachel and me. She wanted my father to give them to us on our 16th birthdays. Rachel got a gold locket, and I got this watch.
a flat, gold-faced Timex with a simple black band. I'd worn the watch every day since my father gave it to me on my 16th birthday. Soon after my mother's death, I told my father and grandmother that I wanted to be a doctor so I could help people just like my mother. Before I knew it, I was through college and into medical school. What a tribute to your mother's memory, an aunt would say, or what a tremendous way to honor your mother, an old family friend would comment. I felt the pressure mounting. People were counting on me to become a physician. My mother's memory depended on it. But after three months of rotations and watching people suffer and die, and now a week with Dr. Getz, I questioned whether I'd made the right decision. I felt as if I didn't measure up, that I wasn't cut out for it. I opened my eyes and realized I needed to get back to rounds. Our team gathered outside the patient's room, and Micah, another third-year med student on our team, stepped forward and began to give the patient's blood pressure, pulse, heart rate, and the results of a heart test administered the previous afternoon. Micah was the gunner of our group, a med student's term to describe a fellow student who was always the first to answer, the first to give stats on someone else's patient, and the first to get on other students' nerves. Helen Wayman was the next patient on our rounds. She was a 52-year-old woman complaining of chest pain who had a history of cervical disc disease. I had done Helen's workup when she was admitted to the hospital the previous afternoon. I went over her progress notes with the team before entering her room. It was customary that the attending physician took over once the group entered the patient's room. It was our time to stand back and learn, but I felt it was important to greet my patients first. Good morning, Helen, I said, standing at her side. I see your daughter was able to bring your knitting to you. Now you're not so bored, I hope. Dr. Getz glanced at me. What are you making? I asked. A baby blanket for my next grandchild, number three. I've made a blanket for all of them. She's due in the next week or two. I sensed Dr. Getz waiting for me to finish. Let's go ahead and take a listen to your heart again this morning. I listened to her heart and felt for her pulse. Dr. Getz would like to listen to your heart today as well. Dr. Getz took my place and examined her. As he did, he asked her about all her grandchildren, where they lived, and if she'd make him a pair of slippers. She laughed, and I watched as Dr. Getz won over yet another patient. Before leaving the room, I squeezed Helen's shoulder and told her I'd be by later to check on her. I walked with William toward the cafeteria for lunch when my pager went off. I walked to Helen's room. Her daughter, Mary, looking very pregnant and uncomfortable, was sitting in the chair next to the bed. Is everything all right, Helen? I asked. She leaned forward and rubbed her hand over her lower back. My back has been hurting. I helped Helen into a more comfortable position. You've been immobile longer than usual and that may be putting pressure on those discs in your back. Does that feel better? She paused for a moment. Yes, thank you. I think it helped. So you don't think it's anything serious? Mary asked. No, it may just be some inflammation around those discs, but we should rule out any other possibilities. 
I left her room and went to the nurse's station to discuss follow-up with the nurse on duty and to page one of the residents when Mary came rushing from her mother's room. My mother needs help. A nurse ran past me and headed to Helen's room. I followed close behind. I had just stepped inside when the nurse called in a loud, firm voice, Page Dr. Vashti. I stood in the hallway, right outside Helen's door, feeling helpless as Peter wheeled Helen to the OR. I was ordered to stay behind and attend to the other patients on the floor. I finished my duties and ran up the two flights of stairs to the OR. As I threw open the door, I saw Peter waiting for the elevator. What happened? How's Helen Wayman? I asked. She died a few minutes ago, Peter said. What happened? She died from ascending aortic dissection, Peter said. The elevator doors opened in front of us, but I couldn't step forward. My legs were too weak to carry me. Peter stepped inside the elevator and held the door open for me. Nathan? I looked at him but couldn't respond. If Helen died of ascending aortic dissection, it meant the pain she felt in her back was caused from a tear in the aorta, not her cervical disc problem. She told me her back was aching. I thought that the pain was attributed to cervical disc disease. I had just gone to the nurse's station to... Peter nodded, cutting me off. Given her history, I would have thought the same, he said. Helen was a woman with a long history of back problems, Nathan. She was much sicker than any of us knew, and sometimes there's just nothing we can do. After Helen died, I confided my doubts to William during a game of one-on-one -on -one basketball. It's because our hours are so long, William said. You'd see things differently if you just weren't so tired. He sank a shot over my head. I grabbed the ball and held him off with one arm. You're taking gets too personally. He comes down hard on everybody. I ran around him and jumped in the air, aiming for the basket. The ball dropped through the hoop and William grabbed it, dribbling it close to the floor. It's not gets, I said, lunging for the ball. A patient died under my care. She wasn't under your care. You were the med student on the team that was treating her, William said. He rested the ball on his hip, wiping his face with the back of his arm. There was nothing anyone could have done. You need to stop blaming yourself. He was moving again. I charged for the ball and snatched it away from him, throwing in a sweet two-pointer. He caught the ball when it fell through the net and darted past me up the middle. She trusted me, William. Did you go into medicine thinking you could save everyone? If you did, you're going to burn out faster than any of us. What's important is that your patients feel safe with you. You're good with them. I don't think my patients like me, William said, moving past me, dunking another ball. I grabbed it and held him at arm's length. They're just afraid of you, I said. You walk into their room and they've never seen anybody as big as you. You're an imposing black figure when you walk into a patient's room. I darted past him and jumped in the air. The ball swiped the bottom of the net, and I groaned. He laughed and snatched the ball, dribbling it close to his body. Do you ever have doubts? I asked, waving my arms in his face. Sure I do. He sank another shot over my head. I didn't believe him. 
But he was right about one thing. Our hours were brutal, the work was intense, and together they left me physically and emotionally exhausted. Now Dr. Getz seemed determined to turn my rotation into the most miserable experience of my education. Megan Sullivan poked her head inside the hospital room of 12-year-old Charlie Bennett. When the college freshman saw that the boy was awake, she ran to his bed and plopped down on top of it. I looked all over for you after the meet. Your dad found me and said you were here. What's going on? Ask mom, Charlie said, eyeballing his mother. She's the one who made me come. Leslie Bennett smiled as she stood to leave the room. He had trouble catching his breath, Megan. It didn't even last that long, Charlie said, rolling his eyes. Only long enough to cut a few years off my life, that's all, Leslie said, smiling. She grabbed her empty coffee cup and left the room. When Charlie was born, only one ventricle of his heart worked. He had three surgeries during the first three years of his life so the blood flow into his heart could be rerouted flowing to the lungs without the aid of the other ventricle. The surgeries worked, meaning that the one strong ventricle supplied blood flow to his body and allowed Charlie to live a life like other little boys his age. It was only in the last five months that he'd begun to have any sort of trouble. How'd you do today? Charlie asked. I came in first, Megan said. Charlie pumped his arm up and down with the enthusiasm of a coach standing on the sidelines of the Olympics. What did you run it in? Megan looked down and smiled. 1530? The boy's eyes lit up and he cracked his knuckles. Man, I wish I could have been there. When's your next race? Friday. Good, he said, giving her a serious look. Cut two seconds off. What? Two seconds, are you crazy? I already cut my old time. I ran the fastest I ever have today. Charlie brought his hands up under his chin and smiled. Run faster. Megan sighed. Charlie pointed his finger. Don't ever take your eyes off the finish line. If you take your eyes off the goal, you'll never make it to the end. Megan said the words along with him. Never take your eyes off the goal, I know, she said shaking her head. You tell me the exact same thing every time. Charlie turned into the stern taskmaster again. Remember, two seconds. Megan stood and kissed Charlie's face. He quickly wiped it off. Are you going to be there? She asked. Or will you still be in here? I'll be there, he said. There's no way I'm staying in here. Megan had met Charlie her sophomore year in high school. Fascinated with runners he watched on TV in the Olympics, Charlie begged his mom to take him to the local cross-country and track meets. He was quick to notice Megan's ability. You're the fastest girl I've ever seen, he said after one meet. At each race, Megan started looking for the little boy in the stands. She introduced Charlie and Leslie to her family and the two families had been sitting together ever since. Megan slung her bag over her shoulder and headed to the nurse's station, setting a clipboard on top of it. Denise, 
would you mind if I left my sponsor sheet here so you could ask any of the doctors and nurses I don't see if they'd like to sign up? Denise smiled and took the paper from her. Megan was organizing a run that would raise money for a pediatric heart patient fund. The money would be awarded each year to a pediatric heart patient as part of a scholarship once the patient had been accepted to a college. If they don't sign up, I'll inject them with some sort of sponsor sheet injection drug we must have around here someplace, Denise said. I walked toward the nurse's station and was looking over the notes on my clipboard when a young woman ran into me, knocking it out of my hands. I'm so sorry, she said, swooping the clipboard up before I could get to it. She laughed and her blue eyes sparkled. Her light brown hair fell just on top of her shoulders, and when she smiled, her face lit up. She was lovely. No, no, it's my fault, I said. I shouldn't have been walking on the side of the hall that's clearly designated for running. She laughed harder, handing me the clipboard. Just keep that in mind from now on, she said, smiling, jogging toward the elevator. I set my clipboard down on the nurse's station and rubbed my eyes. I could feel the pressure building in my forehead. Another rough morning with Dr. Getz? Denise asked. He's the best there is, really. I folded my hands on top of the counter. You know, everybody keeps telling me that, but those people have never actually worked under Dr. Getz. Denise shrugged her shoulders. Just telling you what I've seen for years around here. People love him. Med students don't love him. Med students aren't people, she said, straight-faced. I looked at her and she broke out laughing. I noticed the sponsor sheet next to my clipboard. What's this? It's for a scholarship run for the pediatric heart patients. She pushed the sheet toward me. Do something good in the world. Sign up. Is this your idea of peer pressure? She put the pen in my hand. You bet. Now sign up and help the kids. Who's the sponsoring organization for the run? I asked, signing my name. It's not an organization. It's Megan Sullivan. She's one of the fastest runners in the state. Is she on staff here? No. She's one of our heart patients. Megan was startled when the phone rang. She bolted upright in bed and stumbled through the dark hallway into the living room, where she picked up the receiver. It was Denise from the pediatric unit. Megan's mother, Allison, crept up behind her and was able to make out bits and pieces of the conversation. What time? She heard Megan ask. How is she? Allison watched as Megan nodded and said, Don't worry about it, we were up anyway, and hung up the phone. Megan looked at Allison. A heart is available for hope. Hope Reed was a five-year-old who had been waiting for a heart transplant for six months. An early morning car accident 500 miles away claimed the life of a five-year-old boy. Megan was quiet as she put on her running shorts and shoes and pulled her hair into a ponytail. I won't be gone long, she said as she closed the door behind her. The early morning air was cold, and the sun was just beginning to break through the orange and red leaves of the trees. Fall was her favorite time of year to run. She went to a nearby park and started to stretch, 
looking for the runner with the neon ball cap. When she saw her, Megan took off. Megan pushed herself to keep up as the runner in the neon cap made one lap after another around the lake. When the runner finally slowed down and walked over the crest of the hill toward her car, Megan stopped, breathing hard. One of these days I'll catch up to you, she said toward the empty hill, and then I'm going to pass you. She sat down on the wet grass beside the lake and pulled her knees up to her chin. Help hope through the operation, she whispered. Please let this new heart work. She rested there for several minutes, tossing tiny pebbles and acorns into the lake and watched as small ripples spread out over the water's surface. At first, I thought it was too cold for a run. I hadn't been a diehard since my college days, but today I decided it was okay and drove to the park. I stood by my truck and stretched my legs. In the distance, I saw two other runners on the path, a young woman wearing tight black spandex and a neon ball cap who blazed around the lake, and another woman wearing a knit cap. I watched Neon Lady as she ran the perimeter of the lake. She was a great runner, all fluid motion when she breezed around the path. But then I noticed the young woman running behind her. She was pacing herself against Neon Lady. That's what it looks like when you're doing what you're supposed to do, I thought, watching them. I arrived at the hospital 30 minutes early to speak with Peter. He was the only one who carried enough weight to help me. I was wondering if I could possibly be part of another rotation. My voice sounded weak inside my own head, but I hoped it sounded convincing to Peter. He seemed a bit distracted, and I couldn't help but feel that things were already off to a poor start. The hospital's not in the habit of accommodating the wants of medical students. You know that. It's not necessarily a want, Peter. I need to change to another rotation, I said. Why? Because I'm thinking of dropping out of med school, and if I stay under Dr. Getz, I'm sure I will. There was a long pause. I'll see what I can do. I felt the weight of the world lift from my chest. I looked at my watch. I had to get going. The other med students and I had to scrub in to observe a heart transplant for a five-year-old patient. Megan opened the door and saw Luke and Olivia eating breakfast at the kitchen table. Was Neon Lady there? Luke asked. She was there. Did you beat the pants off her? Olivia asked. Megan slid in next to her sister at the table. Nah, I let her win. I feel so bad for her. She's fast, athletic, attractive. If I didn't let her beat me every morning, she wouldn't have anything going for her. After breakfast, Megan helped dress Olivia for school. I can do it myself, you know, Olivia said. Megan pulled a fuzzy sweater over her sister's head. I know you can, but I like to do it. Olivia sighed as Megan buttoned her into her clothes for the day. Truth was, Olivia loved all the attention her older sister gave her. Outside the bedroom door, Allison listened as Megan and Olivia talked. To think that for so long, she and Jim never believed they'd have a family of their own. After seven childless years, Megan was born in 1981. Every night when Megan was a little girl, 
Jim would carry her to the back deck and lift her head toward the stars. He'd show her one constellation after another, then, pointing to a bright light, say, That's what you are, Meg. You're a star. You're daddy's little star. As he lifted her from the crib one morning, Jim noticed something was wrong. Megan was lethargic and non-responsive. He was in the car with Megan and halfway out of the driveway before Allison knew what was happening. She jumped in the car beside them and rode to the hospital without taking the time to put on her shoes. The doctors took x-rays and Megan screamed. They drew blood and she screamed louder. You need to get her to a heart specialist, the emergency room doctor said. Jim and Allison were terrified. How could this be? The baby they tried so long to have was sick. Dr. Crawford Getz held the squirming child close to him and cooed in her ear. When Megan looked into his eyes, a small smile broke over her face. There's a hole in her heart, he said, gently running his pinky over Megan's cheek. Oh my God, Allison gasped. However, it's an odd size. Normally, if the hole is too big, we go in and repair it. When they're small, we just leave them, knowing they'll eventually close on their own. Jim and Allison waited for him to continue. Dr. Getz cradled Megan in one arm, pulling her close to him. I don't think this hole is big enough to repair. So it will close on its own? Jim asked. It may not close all the way. What if it doesn't? What will that mean? Jim said. You'll need to monitor her activities, make sure she doesn't do anything too strenuous. But she can live a normal life, Allison said, taking Megan from the doctor's arms. With restrictions, she can. She might not be able to ride her bike as fast as the other kids in the neighborhood, or jump in the pool 20 times in a row, but it's too early to tell. We'll need to examine her throughout the years to monitor any changes. Jim and Allison took their child home, determined to treat her as a fragile gift. But Megan rejected any acts of delicacy from the beginning. If Megan was sick, she didn't know it. On her fifth birthday, Jim and Allison took her back to Crawford Getz, who took more x-rays of her heart. For the last several years, the hole hadn't closed at all, but Dr. Getz always beamed when he saw Megan. She was proving him wrong, and he couldn't be happier. The child wasn't fragile and frail. She was a ball of fire. In second grade, after her parents had given up hope of having more children, Megan became an older sister when Luke was born. Four years later, Olivia was born. When Megan was in the third grade, the Sullivans moved to a larger house. Their new home was on the other side of the city, in a different school district. Megan was distraught over the move. She was moving away from her friends. Instead of riding the bus like she used to, Megan became a walker. Allison walked with her those first several weeks, pushing Luke in the stroller. You can't walk her every day, Jim said. We have to let her walk with the other kids. So the next day, Allison sent her out the door for her first solo walk to school. But Megan didn't make friends on her walk that morning, so when the final bell of the day rang, she ran all the way home.
Megan ran to and from school every day for the next three years. Of course, Megan's running made Allison a nervous wreck, but Jim would say, Dr. Getz said her heart is strong, Allison. Let her run if she wants to. I washed every inch of my hands and arms. Then a nurse slipped the surgical scrubs up over my shoulders and slid gloves onto my hands. Dr. Kenneth Jonan, one of the transplant surgeons, would perform the surgery, with Dr. Barry Mann assisting. Dr. Getz filed our team into the operating room, and we waited for the transplant to begin. From time to time, Dr. Jonan would speak to us without taking his eyes off his work. I noticed that on several occasions, Dr. Getz leaned down and whispered in the girl's ear, Doing great, Hope. Everything's looking good. I was drawn into the surgery in a way I hadn't expected. I saw the heart beating inside the girl's tiny chest and was so moved by the sight that my throat tightened. Dr. Jonan stopped her heart and removed it. It was swollen and dark red. He passed the heart to a nurse, and she set it on a towel, where we watched it pump several times before stopping altogether. Unbelievable, I thought. The new heart was pale pink and glossy. Dr. Jonan rolled the heart into Hope's empty chest cavity, and we watched as he connected the back of the heart first. After 30 minutes of stitching, the heart was in place. Dr. Jonan removed the cross clamp, and we waited for the blood to flow into the coronary arteries that fed the heart and watched as it began to pump. I felt like throwing my hands in the air and cheering, it was the most remarkable thing I'd ever seen. Amazing, Dr. Getz said under his breath. He clapped Dr. Jonan on the back, and I could see him smile through his mask. Dr. Jonan bent over toward the heart again and continued his work. Clamp. There was silence in the room. I glanced up and saw Dr. Jonan looking at me. He held out his hand. Clamp. I looked at the instruments and was afraid I'd hand him the wrong one. Clamp, Dr. Jonan said, looking at William. William stepped forward and handed him the instrument. After scrubbing up, Dr. Getz met with us to recap the operation and to answer any questions we might have. For a brief moment, I looked down at my watch and realized it had stopped running again. As I gave it a couple of quick taps, I noticed that Dr. Getz was no longer speaking. Am I boring you, Mr. Andrews? No, sir. He reached for a pair of glasses in his pocket and began cleaning them with the sleeve of his white coat. May I ask if you feel this is your calling, Mr. Andrews? I could feel the eyes of my peers on me. Sir? Is medicine a calling or a responsibility for you? I was stunned. I don't know if I was more taken aback because Dr. Getz was embarrassing me in front of my classmates or because he sensed my apprehension. If it's not a question you've addressed yet, Dr. Getz said, I would suggest that you do. When Friday came, I couldn't wait to get to my apartment and crash. On my way home, I drove past the university and noticed buses and cars lined along the street. The sign in front read, Ross, Untree, meet today. 
In spite of my throbbing head, I laughed when I read it, wondering what the kid was like who made off with the missing C's. On a whim, I pulled into the drive. I parked the truck and made my way across the grass to the bleacher seats. As I looked at the crowd, I had to smile. My father, grandmother, and sister sat in seats just like these many years ago to watch me run, cheering till their voices were hoarse. A group of female runners walked toward the starting line. As they gathered, a small girl in the middle of the crowd cupped her hands around her mouth and screamed something. Embarrassed, the girl's mother covered her mouth as the runners shot off their marks. A girl, tall and lean, her light brown ponytail tossing in the wind, blew past the other runners and took the lead. The crowd was on their feet shouting her name. I couldn't make out what they were saying, but it was obvious she was the hometown favorite. I got up and screamed along with everyone else. Go, 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 I said with every step she took. I could see her wend her way through the woods, her strides long and fast. The other runners were pushing as hard as they could to catch up. The crowd was so loud that I missed much of what the announcer said. All I heard as the winner crossed the finish line was, shaved three seconds off her previous 5K record. She ran it today in 15 minutes and 27 seconds. I'd never seen a girl run that fast. No wonder the crowd was so big. The university had a star on its hands. Michelle Norris, one of the coaches for the women's team, caught Megan and her family before they left the field. She was clutching a large brown envelope, smiling. I didn't want to blow your concentration before the race, she said to Megan. But Stanford called me today. They've got a full scholarship with your name on it. Jim threw his arms over his head in victory. Megan was too astonished to speak. That's the second school, Allison said. Georgetown had called a week earlier. I think there'll be others, Michelle said. They know they're missing out on one of the best runners in the country. She put her arm around Megan. Now comes the hard part. Choosing. Leslie Bennett drove Charlie to the hospital before Megan's race. He begged his mother to take him to the meet, but his breathing was labored again, so the race was out of the question as far as Leslie was concerned. Dr. Getz admitted him for an overnight stay, and once his medications were adjusted, Charlie fell asleep. Leslie stayed at his side. In recent weeks, she and Rich had noticed that Charlie had less energy and was sleeping more than usual. Leslie resigned from her part-time daycare position when Charlie's visits to the hospital became more frequent, often leaving Matthew, Charlie's ten-year-old brother, with her parents. Rich's job didn't provide the insurance coverage needed for all of the medical expenses, but it covered some, and anything helped at that point. Rich was taking any overtime hours he could get, but there was only so much one man could do. The months of stress and worry were showing on both their faces. I was walking toward the lounge when I passed Hope's room. Her mother, Beth, was always with her. Her room looked like a florist shop filled with flowers, balloons, and stuffed animals. Hope's father, Gabe, was a loan officer at a nearby bank, and many of his customers had sent gifts. I peeked in her door to see how she was doing. She waved me in, 
her little body dwarfed by the tangle of tubes and wires and machinery surrounding her. In the middle of a so-so day, I know there's always hope, I said, as if reciting poetry. Hope smiled and looked at her mother. When people demand more of my time, and I think I just can't give any more, I know there's always hope. I stood at the side of her bed. I don't know what I'd do without hope in my day. Hope giggled, and her mother laughed, squeezing Hope's hand. Dr. Andrews, Hope said, you're one of my favorite doctors. I'm not a doctor, I said, leaning toward her. I'm a med student. It's this jacket. See, I said, taking it off. When I take it off, I look like an accountant. Hope shook her head. No, you're a doctor, she said, and you're my favorite. And I thought I was your best guy. I turned to see Dr. Gett standing in the doorway. You're both my favorites, she said, holding on to each of our hands. But don't tell anybody else. Dr. Getz put his finger to his lips as if he would keep her secret. I slipped from the room and walked toward the lounge. Are you on your way to see a patient? I stopped when I heard Dr. Getz behind me. Uh, no, I said, unable to think fast enough. Good, he said. Walk with me as I check on Charlie Bennett. Great, I thought. I never wanted to be with Dr. Getz as part of a group, let alone soak up some one-on-one -on -one time with him. When we entered Charlie's room, he was propped up in his bed watching television. Leslie sat at his side. Dr. Getz stopped in the center of the room, opened his arms wide, and waited for a word from his young patient. It's still beating away in there, Charlie said. Dr. Getz walked to his bed and sat down. Pain? No. Dr. Getz pretended to make a larger-than-life checkmark on Charlie's chart, which made Charlie laugh. Breathing problems? No, Charlie said. Two big checkmarks. Sleeping? Yes. Dr. Getz pretended to make enormous exclamation points on the chart, circling his arm in the air at the end for a grand finale. I couldn't help but be impressed by the banter between doctor and patient. Dr. Getz listened to Charlie's heart and took his pulse and blood pressure. Are they treating you okay? Dr. Getz asked him. Leaving a mint on your pillow every night? They won't give me ice cream, Charlie said, annoyed. Leslie laughed. I told them not to bring it. I didn't know if that should be part of his diet or not. Dr. Getz leaned in close to Charlie. If I can get Mom to okay the ice cream, will you spend one more night with us so we can monitor how the meds are doing? Charlie nodded yes. A large bear-like roar caught my attention. I turned toward the television to see a wrestler body-slamming another wrestler to the mat. Who's your favorite? I asked pointing to the screen. Iceman, Charlie answered without hesitation. I threw my hands in the air. No way! Iceman's all water. The rock crushes him every time. Charlie stared at me, wide-eyed. Water turns to ice and freezes over rocks. I shrugged my shoulders. But then the ice melts and turns to water, and guess who's still standing? The rock! Leslie laughed. 
Please don't encourage him. Dr. Getz rubbed Charlie's head and turned to leave. Ice cream's on its way. Charlie waved and I smiled, following Dr. Getz into the hallway. I didn't know you watch wrestling, Dr. Getz said to me. I don't. The only guy I've ever heard of is The Rock. Dr. Getz led me through the hall as he made his way to the next room. I've watched you with patience, Nathan, especially the children. You have a way with them, a natural ability that we can't teach. Either a student has it, or he or she doesn't. Sometimes you tend to take that care a little too personally on yourself, but again, that's something we can work on. He crossed his arms and looked at me. Have you ever considered pediatrics, or even pediatric cardiology? No, I answered honestly. You might consider one of them, perhaps training with me in cardiology. After those words, I didn't hear anything else. Dr. Getz's mouth kept moving, but my mind couldn't process what he was saying. I'm being switched to Dr. Hazelman's rotation, I said, spitting out the words. Dr. Getz didn't falter. Very good, then. He tucked Charlie's file beneath his arm. Let me know if I can help. He disappeared around the corner, leaving me standing in the hallway. I leaned my head against the wall and closed my eyes. Was there even the slightest possibility that I was making a mistake? Maybe I should complete my rotation with Dr. Getz. I shook off the idea and walked toward the nurse's station. The transition to Dr. Hazelman's rotation happened the next day. He was part of the surgery block, which I had already completed, but his specialty lay in emergency medicine. I would spend the next eight weeks in the emergency room. I jumped into the work with both feet, anxious to prove to Peter that I'd made the right decision in changing rotations. On my first morning in the ER, we watched Dr. Hazelman perform an emergency gallbladder surgery. Many women her age experience gallbladder problems, Dr. Hazelman said. Why is that? The four Fs, Melanie, the gunner of my new group, said. Female, fat, fertile, and 40. Dr. Hazelman nodded. Melanie clutched the clipboard tight to her chest and sighed, dazzled by her own brilliance. Days later, a nurse directed me to a room where a 66-year-old man was complaining of lower back pain. I was assigned to do his evaluation before a doctor saw him. I walked into the room, and the man was clutching his back, groaning. My name's Nathan, Mr. Slavic, I said, holding his chart. I'm here to do your evaluation. He leaned forward to ease his back and groaned. Are you a doctor? No, sir, I'm a med student. Get me a doctor now. I can't take this pain. I've never seen him like this, his wife said, wringing her hands beside me. I tried to listen to Mr. Slavic's abdomen, but he grabbed my wrists, pushing me away. I'll get a doctor, I said. I found Dr. Rory Lee, the fourth-year resident on our team, by the nurse's station. He followed me to the room where the Slavics were waiting. He's complaining of lower back pain, I said. Rory put his stethoscope on Mr. Slavic's belly and felt his stomach with his free hand. 
Rory was pushing the gurney into the hallway and barking orders before I knew what was happening. I ran behind him. Call the OR. Tell them I have an abdominal aortic aneurysm about to rupture, he yelled to a nurse. Where are you taking him? Mrs. Slavic asked, following us to the elevator. Your husband needs surgery, Rory said, pushing the gurney through the rush of people exiting the elevator. What's happening? She cried as the doors closed. A nurse approached me and stuck another chart in my face. I ignored her. I walked outside, stumbling over the curb. I sat against a wall and ran my hands through my hair. I knew that someone would start looking for me, wondering where I was, but my legs couldn't lift me. I'm not sure how long I had been crouched against the wall when Rory found me. Did he die? I asked. No. I didn't hear blood rushing through the aorta. Because you don't have enough clinical experience, Rory said. You can't read something in a textbook, then expect to pick up on it the very first time a patient walks through the door. Mr. Slavic was in pain, I said. If I can't figure out why a patient is in pain, then I'm not doing my job. He could have died. He would have died if you hadn't saved him. If a patient dies, it doesn't mean we're not doing our job, Nathan. I had two die last night in the ER. Sometimes bad things happen even when we do everything right. You have to let go of this idea that everyone is going to live because the fact is people die. After a long pause, he said, Have you ever considered taking a break from your studies, Nathan? Perhaps finishing your rotations at another time? It was one thing for me to admit to Rory that I didn't think I was measuring up. It was another for him to agree. I sat speechless, my shirt wet with perspiration. You won't be the first to do this. It happens more often than you know. What do you think, Rory? I asked. I think you'd make an excellent physician, Nathan. You're great with the patients, but you don't trust yourself. And as a result, you don't handle the pressure very well. And there is a lot of pressure when a patient is dying. But they do die, Nathan. And there's nothing even the world's best doctor can do about that. He clapped my shoulder and walked back into the hospital, leaving me alone to wonder what I would do with my life. I picked a cake up at the supermarket after work the next day. I'd ordered it that morning, a white cake with white frosting, yellow lilies, and happy birthday grandma written across the top. Before my mother died, my grandmother had moved in to help with her care. I don't want strangers taking care of Maggie, she told my father. She had taken care of my family ever since. Lorraine, Grandma's best friend who lived up the street, met me at the door. She was wearing a bright, multicolored nylon sweatsuit, sequined with toucans and other tropical birds, and pink sneakers. She kissed my cheek and eyed the big white box I was carrying in my arms. Why did you spend good money on a cake, Nathan? Grandma asked when I came into her kitchen. My sister Rachel was already home from college. Grandma, this is number 77. I think I can afford the $15 for a cake. It breaks down to just pennies per year. A familiar smell wafted from the kitchen. Is that lasagna? My grandmother jumped to her feet.
Yes, it is. And I'd better put a pan under it before the cheese melts over the side. But lasagna's Nathan's favorite, Rachel said. Not yours. Shouldn't we be having something you like for your birthday? I've been eating all my life, she said, sliding a flat pan beneath the pan of lasagna. But I doubt either of you have had a decent meal in weeks. She was right about that. I began to set the table for dinner. Don't bother with that now. You two sit down, Grandma said to Rachel and me. I want to tell you something. There was a glimmer in her eyes, a sparkle that told me she was up to something. I'm setting your father up. Grandma slapped the table and laughed. But the best part is he doesn't have any idea what I'm up to. Who is she? I asked, curious. She leaned toward us, whispering as if the room were bugged. Her name is Lydia, and I met her at church. Her husband died five years ago. Well, one Sunday, Lydia came in and sat beside me, and we started talking, and she's been sitting beside me every week. She's on one side, and your dad is on the other. What's she like? Rachel asked. She's a gem, so nice. Is she pretty? I asked. She is, but not as pretty as your mother. No one was ever as pretty as my mother. So here's my plan, Grandma continued. I'm always taking up that middle seat between them, so I'm not going to show up one week. Then Lydia will ask where I'm at. Your father will say I'm under the weather, and before we know it, wedding bells will finally ring around here. The timer on the oven buzzed, and she jumped to her feet. Don't either of you dare tell your father what I'm up to, she said, squawking like a nervous bird behind me. For once, I'd like to keep something to myself around here. When my father walked through the front door, I could smell the familiar scent of the garage. The scents of fuel and grease always clung to his hair and skin until he showered. He'd been working at the same garage, city auto service, since before I was born. I did my best to keep the dinner conversation focused on Rachel and off my rotation. I teased her about not bringing home a boyfriend to meet the family. And where are all those women who aren't standing in line to go out with you? She asked. It'd be nice if somebody around here dated, Grandma said, eyeballing my father, who wasn't paying attention to her. After dinner, we sang happy birthday to my grandmother. Grandma blew out the candle, and I placed my present in front of her. Nathan, you shouldn't have spent your money on me. I rolled my eyes. Truth was, I didn't buy it. I'd made it with my father's tools. Grandma ripped the paper and removed a small wooden box with lilies painted on the side. When Mom died, Grandma encouraged us to write letters to her on special occasions. Her birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, but sometimes even the most insignificant details of our lives inspired them. Over the years, she used one shoebox after another to store them in, scribbling letters to Maggie on the side of each new box. The wooden box brought tears to her eyes as she ran her fingers over the words on top, letters to Maggie. She raised the cover and pulled a single letter from the bottom of the box. I had written it earlier in the day. Dear Mom, today is Grandma's 77th birthday. 
She cried when I gave her the present I made for her, and then she cried again when she read this letter. She loves you very much, and so do I. Nathan Grandma laughed, then swatted me for making her cry. When Grandma started to clean up the table, my father stopped her. Nathan and I will get these, he told her. I scraped the plates into the disposal and handed them to Dad to load in the dishwasher. How's everything at the hospital? he asked. Everything's great. He rearranged the plates to make more room in the rack. Now that that's out of the way, he said, taking the glasses from me, how are things really going at the hospital? He leaned against the counter, looked me in the eyes, and waited for my answer. Did you ever think you should have done something else besides being a mechanic? I asked. He laughed. Some days I'd have my head under the hood of a car and think of a hundred other things. Why didn't you do anything else then? He shrugged. I don't know. For whatever reason, I can take apart a car engine. I don't know why, except it's provided a way for me to take care of my family. It's given me steady customers for the last hundred or so years. And I like to think that maybe the elderly folks or single mothers that come into the shop know I'm not going to take advantage of them. Maybe I was put there for no other reason than to watch out for people like that. And if I hadn't been a mechanic, I never would have met your mother. So I guess there's a reason for everything. He wrung out the dishcloth before wiping down the counters. Do you want to be a mechanic? He asked, smiling. I shook my head. I'm not so sure what I want to be anymore, I said. I waited for the lecture, but it never came. He kept any advice or words of frustration to himself. Everybody's meant to do something, he said. You'll know what you're supposed to do. A moment will come, and you'll know. I think that moment has come, I said, dreading what I was about to tell him. Dad turned off the lights in the kitchen and sat in his recliner. I sat on the sofa next to Rachel, hoping I'd gain some level of support from her. Um, I said. Any conversation that begins with um is always off to a roaring start. I started again. Um, one of the residents talked to me yesterday. All three of them looked at me. They could tell that what I was relaying wasn't good news. He suggested it might be a good idea for me to shelve medical school, to take a break for a while. What sort of crazy is he? My grandmother snapped. He's not crazy. He's the resident for my current rotation. Why did he say that? My father asked. Because something's not clicking with me, Dad. I don't know what it is. The room was quiet. My grandmother looked at my father, who much to my discomfort, had never taken his eyes off me. But you still want to pursue medicine, right? He asked. I don't think so. You need to tell that horrible doctor that he's making you think awful thoughts about yourself and making you all crazy in the head, my grandmother said. He said he thought I'd make a good physician, Grandma. So what's the problem? My grandmother was beside herself and threw her hands in the air. So this doctor is suggesting that you get out of medicine and do what? My father asked. I could do anything, 
research, work in a hospital lab, maybe some sort of administrative position. My father nodded, but didn't say anything. My grandmother slapped the armrests and rocked back and forth in her recliner. You were meant to be a doctor, she said. From the time you were a boy, you were meant for this. They didn't say it, but I knew my family was disappointed. We all stared at the floor, wondering what to say. This is what I think, my father finally said. I think you need to fulfill your duties through the holidays. With Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, it seems much of the staff would be on vacation, and they would appreciate any help they can get around the hospital. Hopefully, during that time, you'll be able to figure out what you want to do. I'd have till December 23rd to figure things out. That's when the rotation ended and med students went on Christmas break. Charlie snapped the television off when Megan walked into the room dressed like a football player. It was the Halloween party at the hospital, and she was going to push Charlie in the parade of costumes. Charlie got down to business right away. Did you run this morning? Megan nodded. Was she there? Megan nodded again. Did you beat her? Megan lowered her head. Oh, come on, Charlie said. You gotta beat her someday. Megan raised her head and smiled. I did. Charlie let out a whoop and pumped his arm in the air. I knew it'd happen someday. Next stop, the Olympics. How about next stop, Halloween party? Come on, get your costume on. Besides, I can't train for the Olympics while you're in this hospital bed. If you're going to coach me, you've got to be out in the field with me. I'm getting out of here just as fast as I can, he said, cracking his knuckles. Stop doing that, she said, or you're going to have ape hands like all those wrestling freaks. Megan's family arrived early to help with the party. Luke was dressed like a fireman and Olivia ran around the unit wearing red tights and leotard and a black hat with a piece of white rope bobbing from the top. Megan found a wheelchair and pushed it back to Charlie's room, where she found him dressed as Charlie Chaplin waiting for her. Leslie helped Charlie into the wheelchair, and Megan pushed him to the pediatric unit through the parade of costumes that filled the hallway. Med students had been volunteered to man the empty patient rooms as the children went from door to door yelling trick-or-treat. I was standing behind a door when I heard a loud knock. I opened it to find a small boy dressed as a fireman and a little girl with a rope sticking out of her hat. I tried to make out her costume. What are you today? A firecracker, she said, beaming. I always thought firecrackers were loud and annoying, but now I know different because you're quiet and very pretty. She opened her mouth, embarrassed, and hugged her mother's waist. What's your name? Olivia. I put candy in her bag. Olivia sounds like the name of a princess. Are you a princess? Olivia shook her head and buried her face in her mother's side. Her mother thanked me for the candy and pulled her daughter toward the next room. Olivia peeked up at me, smiling. Hey, what's your name? She yelled from down the hall. Nathan. Bye, Nathan, she said, reeling from her first crush.
The next morning, I pulled a hooded sweatshirt over my head and slipped on a pair of sweatpants. I called William and asked if he wanted to go for a run. He didn't. William hated to run. I persisted, and he walked into my apartment wearing a pair of orange shorts over his sweatpants. I looked at him, wondering if it was a joke or not. What? he asked. Don't runners always wear shorts over their jogging pants? I don't think so. He looked down at himself. I swear I saw this in a magazine on some big-name runner. Name some big-name runners and I'll tell you if it was that guy or not. I laughed and grabbed my keys. No big-name runner would wear an outfit that looked like that. We drove to the park and started our run. Hold on, man, William said, pulling me back. Don't go so fast. What's the point of running anyway? I looked at him and shook my head. He crouched to the ground and untied his shoe. I need to fix my shoe. You go ahead and I'll catch up. I ran a few laps around the lake. Running had always been a good stress reliever for me, although recently it seemed as if nothing was relieving the stress anymore. I ran faster, wondering why I couldn't be more like my father. I'd been asking myself the same question ever since I was a child. People always said that I was like my father because I was quiet, but Dad's qualities ran much deeper than his silence. Many times, I'd awaken in the night and see light coming from the living room. I'd creep there and find my father sitting alone, flipping through the family album, looking at pictures of my mother. God didn't take your mother, he'd always tell me, echoing what Mom had told me weeks before her death. He received her. There's a difference. He had promised my mother that he would explain that to me until I finally understood. One Saturday, Dad was working on Lorraine's car in our driveway when she made a comment about how God had taken my mother to heaven. He didn't take her, I said, protesting. He received her. My father slid out from underneath the car and looked at me. On that day, he realized that I understood. William stepped onto the path and broke my concentration. Unless somebody's chasing you, there's no reason to run that fast, he said. Are you ready to break a sweat? I asked. As long as it doesn't drip down into my shoes. A female runner slowed down to pass us, turning back to look at me. She stopped and walked up to us. Is this official doctor stuff? She said. I looked at her and she smiled the prettiest smile I've ever seen. We met a few days ago when you were walking in the clearly designated running side of the hallway. I remembered who she was. I just wasn't used to women coming up and starting a conversation with me. William picked up his legs and ran in place. I gotta keep moving, he said. I'm losing my stride. I watched him run off and nearly laughed. For somebody who was so agile on the basketball court, William was a lousy runner. I'm Megan Sullivan, by the way, she said, extending her hand. Nathan, I said. Are you the Sullivan who's organizing the scholarship run at the hospital? Her eyes lit up. Did you hear about it? I signed up as a sponsor. I looked at her, remembering something. Denise said you're one of the fastest runners in the state. She was embarrassed and didn't say anything. 
She also said you were one of the heart patients. I like to think of myself as a close, personal friend of Dr. Getz, not as a heart patient. I smiled, wondering why anyone would want to be friends with Dr. Getz. Why are you such close friends with him? I said, playing along. A ventricular septal defect that never closed. I looked at her and she read my mind. I don't know why I can run. Ever since I was a little girl, doctors said I'd never be able to overexert myself. Doesn't running qualify as overexerting yourself? I asked. Yes. Dr. Getz said running would be out of the question. How about a dart? Would they have let you dart somewhere? She grinned and suppressed a laugh. If it was a slow dart. Same with a dash? A slow dash would be fine, but I could never make a mad dash anywhere. I laughed out loud, and Megan joined me. Have you ever been concerned when you run? I asked. She shook her head. My mind knows there's something wrong with my heart. I've seen the x-rays, I know it's defective. But when I run, it's like my heart doesn't know it. It's as if I was created to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I said, unsure whether I believed that or not because I couldn't imagine what I was created to do. If something happened, it'd just be part of the race, like your job. You have great days when people are healed, but there are days when they're not, where nothing you do will make them better. You take the bad with the good, but in the end, the good will always outweigh the bad. Again, I wasn't sure if I believed that or not. What kind of doctor are you? She asked. I'm not a doctor. I'm a third-year med student. So what's it like being a med student? Oh, it's as many cups of weak coffee you can stomach a day and so much more. Megan was easy to talk to. For once, I wasn't stumbling over my tongue. What year are you? I assume she must be in her fourth year of college. I'm a freshman. I snapped my head and looked at her. I thought you were older. I said. I'm 19. I missed the cutoff day for kindergarten by one day. What are you studying? I asked. Just the basics now, because I'm not sure, but I think I'd like to teach. You want to be a gym teacher? She bent over, laughing. People haven't called them gym teachers in years. I should have known it'd be some guy trapped inside a hospital drinking weak coffee. Now you see what all my loans are paying for. I want to teach high school and coach, maybe teach social studies and health. I stopped her there. I had health in eighth grade. Our textbook was called Healthy Living and You. She looked at me. I'm telling you the truth. Mrs. Pringle taught the class, and she stood about five foot five and weighed 180 on a thin day. Megan put her face in her hands and shook her head back and forth. That was not her name. I held up a hand and crossed my heart with the other. I swear it was. And her husband's name was Lemmy. Lemmy Pringle. Do you think he got beat up as a kid? We both laughed, and I found myself not wanting the conversation to end. William bounded back down the hill toward me. I've got to get to the hospital, he said. I nodded and walked toward him. 
I hope we run into each other again, Miss Pringle. I walked up the hill and could hear her laughing. I couldn't remember having a better day at the park. That afternoon, Megan stretched alongside her teammates on the track. Every day she looked forward to practice, first because she loved it, but also because she loved her coach, Michelle Norris. Michelle knelt beside Megan on the track. Has Charlie told you to shave off another second? She asked. Megan pulled her foot toward her, stretching her upper thigh. No. What? Michelle said, feigning disbelief. We've got a big meet here. He should have been demanding things days ago. She gave Megan's arm a playful squeeze and rallied her runners. When Megan stood up, it felt as though her legs would buckle. She had been dragging ever since her morning run in the park, which was odd because the run usually left her energized. She shook out her legs and rolled her neck from side to side. She looked up into the stands and waved at her family. Luke and Olivia were already on their feet, waving with both hands. When her race was called, Megan blended in with all of the other runners standing 30 to 40 deep at the line. But when the gun fired, she bolted to the front position. Jim Sullivan jumped to his feet, cheering her on. Luke and Olivia screamed, go, 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 go. They watched her wend her way through the woods and disappear. Ten minutes in, Jim said, staring at his watch. Ten and a half minutes in, he said, 30 seconds later. 11.02 now. 11.10. Would you stop that babbling, Jim? Allison said. You're making me a nervous wreck over here. Jim tried to be more discreet, but couldn't keep his eyes off the second hand. He spotted a head or two at the end of the meadow. He stood to his feet and scanned the figures looking for Megan. Here she comes. And then he looked down at his watch. 1340, he said, his excitement building. She's never run this fast. Cheers erupted for Megan as she stretched across the finish line in first place. 1520, Jim yelled. Megan walked to the side of the track and bent over, trying to catch her breath. Allison stood taller to get a better look. Stand up, baby, she thought. Straighten up. Megan shook it off, straightened up, and walked toward Coach Norris. That's the way to run a race, Michelle said, hugging her tight. Charlie better be happy with my time, Megan said, gasping. She was walking with Coach Norris toward the rest of the team when she collapsed. I'm fine, Megan said for the hundredth time. Dr. Getz stuck a thermometer in her mouth and listened to her heart. Any chest pain or breathing problems? She shook her head. Just a little tired, and my muscles hurt, she said, balancing the thermometer in her mouth. I've had a headache, but it's no big deal. Dr. Getz took the thermometer out of her mouth, looking at it. No fever, he said. If you had a fever, it would have made sense as to why you collapsed. Since there is no fever, I'm concerned you might have an arrhythmia. Megan sighed. She was familiar with the term. It was an abnormal heartbeat pattern. If I had an arrhythmia, I wouldn't have been able to race today, Megan said. I'd like to put you on telemetry overnight so I can monitor the heart for any irregularities, 
What's telemetry? Allison asked. We'll put several patches on her chest with wires, and we'll be able to monitor the heartbeat day and night at a workstation where computers will warn us of any problems. I also want to do some blood work to rule out anything else, Dr. Getz said. When the x-rays came back, Dr. Getz walked to Megan's room and sat down. No physical change in the heart, he said, holding the x-rays to the light. But we'll still keep you overnight to make sure there's no change in the heart pattern. Megan shook her head. She was not happy. If I have to stay here, can I at least be in Charlie's room? In pediatrics? Dr. Getz asked. If it's just one night, who cares? Megan said. Dr. Getz threw his arms up in the air, surrendering. All right, I'll do anything to get on your good side again. When I got to the hospital that afternoon, I went to the lounge to hang my coat in my locker. A nurse stopped me on my way out. Claudia in pediatrics has been buzzing for you. I walked back into the lounge and picked up the phone. You've got a little girlfriend up here in 1216 who's been asking about you, Claudia said. Who is it? Obviously an admirer of yours. If you have the time, you might want to swing by and say hello. I walked toward 1216 and recognized it as Charlie's room, but I knew he didn't have a sister. I stood outside the door and listened to the chatter of little voices. What's your favorite word? A small voice asked. Love, a woman said. What's your least favorite word? Yuck, the little voice laughed. I peeked my head inside the room and saw Charlie and his mother and another woman I didn't know. You came! The owner of the voice I'd been listening to shrieked, making me turn on my heels. It was Olivia. Well, of course I would come see Olivia. She was surprised I had remembered her name, and her mouth dropped open. She covered it with both hands. Is it your birthday, Charlie? I said. No. They're all with Megan. I spun to look and saw Megan sitting on the bed wearing a hospital gown. I was shocked. What's going on? What happened? I'm actually in here because I don't have a fever, if you can believe that. I scanned Megan's chart. You collapsed? I asked. She shrugged it off. I've been tired, that's all. I'll guarantee you I don't have what Dr. Getz is checking me for. It's good that he's keeping you, I said. She rolled her eyes. You medical people are always so serious. My beeper sounded, and I pressed the button to turn it off. I wanted to stay longer, but I couldn't. I walked toward the door. Will you come back later? Charlie asked. Please, Olivia begged, holding my hand. Please, Megan said, smiling. I walked out the door, realizing that smile was going to occupy my mind for the rest of the day. Early in the evening, I remembered I had promised Olivia I'd come back to see her, which meant I'd also see Megan again. I stuck my head inside the door, but could see that Charlie was sleeping. Megan saw me and propped herself up, smiling. I pulled the divider curtain to keep the noise down for Charlie. So where is everybody? They'll be back soon, 
But Olivia said she was going to die if she didn't eat. She's the drama queen of the family. She motioned for me to sit. Could you stay till everybody gets back? I knew my pager would beep soon enough, but in the meantime I was more than happy to stay with Megan. We talked about music. She loved Ella Fitzgerald. What about all the hip acts that college kids love? Do you like any of them? Like who? I don't know all their names. Snoop Diggity Doo and all those hip cats? Megan shook her head and laughed. We talked about movies. She loved anything made before 1964. No wonder I thought she was older. She was an old soul in a young body. Does your family live here? She asked. They're about an hour away. Well, my dad and grandmother are. My sister's in college. And your mom? Megan said. She died when I was eight. Of what? Cancer. So I bet you're studying oncology. I smiled and she looked me over. You don't look like an oncologist to me. I looked down at myself. What do I look like? You remind me of Dr. Getz. A gust of air rushed through my mouth and I grabbed my head. You do. You must be studying pediatrics or something with kids, right? I groaned inside, but knew I should just tell her the truth. I'm actually finishing up this rotation and getting out of medical school. Why would you do that when you're so good at it? I shook my head and smiled. I just don't think it's right for me. Well, I do, she said, surprising me. Trust me. I know how doctors are around kids, and you're amazing. Maybe it's not right for you now, but what about all those patients who are going to need a doctor like you? You need to finish up for them. She smiled and folded her hands. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Phew, I said, pretending to wipe sweat from my forehead. So what about you? I asked. What about all these scholarships people are buzzing about? She smirked, as if what she did wasn't all that remarkable. So what makes you so good? I found someone to pace myself with, she said. You always have to run with someone better than you. For a brief moment, I felt ashamed. I had been pacing myself with Dr. Getz, someone better than me, but instead of choosing to run alongside him, I chose to run away. In annoyance, I tapped my watch. What's wrong with your watch? It stops every now and then. Why don't you get a new one? My mother wanted me to have this one. It works okay. I just need to coax it along every once in a while. Megan watched me flip the watch over and thump the back of it. The watch isn't your mother, you know. It's just a reminder. Dr. Getz entered the room and I stood to leave. Are you moving in on another one of my best girls? I backed away toward the door. Hey, I don't want no trouble. I didn't know she was your girl. Oh, please, Megan said. I smiled at her, anxious to leave the room now that Dr. Getz had arrived. Will you come by again? There was a day when she used to ask me the same thing, Dr. Getz said, lowering his head. I left the room, smiling. I couldn't make it to Charlie and Megan's room until later in the evening. 
I stuck my head inside, but both of them looked asleep. I started to close the door when I heard crying inside the room. I followed the sound to Megan's bedside and sat down. Are you in pain? I said, whispering. She wiped her eyes and shook her head back and forth on the pillow. What's wrong? I'm just feeling sorry for myself. I sat down and she looked at me. No offense, but I'm really sick of hospitals. I guess that's why it never makes any of the favorite vacation destination lists. She tried to smile, but wasn't in the mood. You'll be out of here tomorrow. Tomorrow's too late. For what? There's an all-night charity dance at the university, and all my friends are there. Not that I'm some great dancer, but I'd rather be there than in here. I handed her a tissue and headed for the door. I ran to the nurse's station and grabbed the boombox and set it on a table in the waiting room. I whispered my plan to the nurses, and one of them disconnected the wires from Megan's chest. I pushed a wheelchair to Megan's side. What's that? Megan asked, looking at the wheelchair. What does it look like? It's a limo. She smiled and sat in the chair. I grabbed her Ella Fitzgerald CD out of the portable CD player by her bedside and wheeled her to the waiting room. The nurses watched from the desk as I popped the CD into the boombox. I offered her my hand. Could I have this dance? She was embarrassed but offered me her hand. I danced her around the room, dipping and spinning her till laughter replaced the tears. Olivia's never going to forgive me, she said. I just dance with the man she loves. I smiled. That was better than dancing with a bunch of college guys any day. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I smiled and she looked at me. Really? She looked down and fidgeted with the hospital gown on her lap. You're a good doctor. I'm not a doctor, I said. I told you I'm barely a student anymore. How would you know anyway? I've never treated you. Because I've been around doctors all my life. I know the good ones from the bad ones. You're gifted at it. I didn't say anything. She sighed and gave up. Will you run in the scholarship race? I'll run it with bells on, I said, meaning it. I looked down and tapped the face of my watch. Megan shook her head. Life's zooming past you while you stand around tapping that watch. I wheeled her back to the room and helped her into bed. Thank you, Nathan. I smiled and turned to look at Charlie, but he was asleep, so I slipped out the door, nodding for the nurse to attach the wires again. I knew that I'd think of Megan for the rest of the night. Charlie stirred shortly after midnight. Rich was lying on a cot, but he sat up when he heard Charlie move. You okay? Rich asked. Charlie nodded. Just tired. You get some sleep, and when you wake up, we'll be here waiting, Rich told his son. Dad, I'm tired, but I'm not sleepy, Charlie said. Tell me about Alaska. Rich's first year in the Air Force was spent in Alaska, and Charlie loved to hear his dad talk of hiking through the mountains and seeing moose and caribou and bears and of fishing for halibut and watching sea otters or walrus play near the boat. 
Five years into his marriage to Leslie, Rich had left the Air Force. He later claimed that leaving was the worst decision he ever made. He went from one failed job interview to another as Charlie's medical bills mounted. Charlie had been healthy, with few problems for the last several years. Five months ago, Dr. Getz admitted him to the hospital for tests when it was apparent his heart was malfunctioning. Dr. Getz sat in a chair opposite the couple, leaning toward them. Charlie's heart has developed an irregular beat. Leslie held tight to Rich's hand. What does that mean? Rich asked. It might just mean that we need to put him on medications. Or, Leslie asked, knowing there was more. Or it could mean that his heart is weakening, Dr. Getz said. As promised, Dr. Getz released Megan in the morning. No arrhythmia, he said, examining her. But I want you to go home and rest for a few days till these flu-like symptoms you have work themselves out. Megan opened her mouth to protest, but Dr. Getz grabbed each side of her face. No running. For how long? A week. What? I'm better. You said so yourself. No. I said you don't have an arrhythmia, but you still collapse from something, so no running. I hope this is the last I see of both of you for a while. Am I getting out too? Charlie asked. Dr. Getz pointed to the door. Get out. Leave. Be gone. Charlie threw the blankets off and swung his feet to the floor. It's a good thing I don't take your excitement to get away from me personally, Charlie. Megan hugged Dr. Getz. Don't take it personally, Dr. Getz. He stood at the door to leave. I won't. But I will take it personally if I don't get a moonlight dance. Megan looked at him, shocked. Who told you? Dr. Getz smiled and slipped out the door. I've got eyes and ears all over this place. Megan ran to the door and yelled down the hall toward him. Big mouth nurses! Early that morning, before most people had even eaten breakfast, I had already been vomited on in the ER. I changed into dry slacks and made my way back to the ER for another full day of stress when I saw both Megan and Charlie at the ER desk. Charlie saw me first. We're getting out today, he said, excited to be going home. Megan smiled. We wanted to let you know, she said. I mean... We wanted to let you know that we wouldn't be upstairs in case. I smiled as she groped for a way to tell me that she'd like to see me again. You know, in case anything medically comes up and you need to reach us. Charlie gave her a confused look that nearly made me laugh. He had no idea what she was doing. Okay, I said. If there are any charts or graphs or x-rays that I need to discuss with either one of you, I'll be sure to contact you at your respective homes. Charlie looked at me and scrunched up his face. I watched as Megan walked with Charlie down the hall and realized I didn't care what happened for the rest of the day. Megan lay propped up on her living room sofa, resting. Two days of practice had come and gone. She was getting restless. She hadn't gotten any more sponsors for the scholarship run, and that made her even more frustrated. 
for the last time you're not going, Allison said. Mom, it won't even take any energy. All I have to do is drive from place to place and ask people if they want to sponsor me in the run. Allison folded the basket of towels and shook her head. Dr. Getz said rest, Megan. I've missed two days of practice. Who's going to sponsor a runner who doesn't run? Allison retrieved the phone book from a drawer. She plopped the telephone and the book in Megan's lap. Let your fingers do the running for you. Megan stared at the phone book, then up at her mother. You're no help at all. But she flipped to the yellow pages anyway and started with the A's. Accountants and attorneys, she thought. Maybe this won't be so hard. She picked up the phone and made her first pitch. Hello, I'm organizing a scholarship run for heart patients. Would your company be interested in sponsoring me? They weren't. On her tenth try, she got a nibble. Leighton and Associates, the woman said. This is Jody. Megan threw her pitch again. Jody Gavin had been working for Robert Leighton for five years. She never bothered Robert with unsolicited calls, but this one was different. There was something in her voice that made Jody want to help. Megan heard the phone click. Robert Leighton, a man said. Megan was startled. She'd never actually gotten past the secretary before. She stumbled as she made her appeal. Who's running? Robert asked. Uh, I am, and some of the staff and doctors from the hospital. Robert asked a few other questions, which, to Megan's surprise, she answered with confidence. Can you put me down for $500? Megan's jaw dropped. She scribbled down Robert's information and gave him her name and phone number should he have any other questions. She hung up the phone and kicked the blanket off her legs. Mom, you're never gonna believe this! I called Megan the next day and we made plans to get together Saturday after my rounds. When Saturday came, I had no idea what Megan and I would do that evening. I wandered down to the cafeteria for a large cup of coffee and a sandwich for lunch, but maintenance had closed it off. A pipe had burst. I walked across the street to Macbeth's, and for the first time ever, I saw Dr. Getz outside of the hospital. I avoided eye contact, hoping he wouldn't see me, but I heard him say hello. I waved and made my way to his table. Have a seat, he said. I slid into a chair uncomfortable to be sitting with him. How's the rotation going? He obviously hasn't heard, I thought. I assumed that all the doctors knew which medical students were crashing and burning. I love meeting new patients, I said, avoiding the question. I can see that. Hope is impressed. That's not easy to do. I took a sip of coffee and shook my head. I don't know how you can keep yourself from not getting attached to kids like her and Charlie and Megan. Who said I'm not attached? He wiped his hands on a napkin. I held Megan when she was just a few days old. I can't tell you how old that makes me feel. Do you remember all your patients from over the years? I don't think I could place all the adults, but I remember the children. He was quiet. I remember all of them. I knew he was talking about the ones he couldn't help. 
I lost a four-year-old two weeks after a transplant last year, and her face will pop into my mind, and I just can't explain why she's not running across a playground today. For the first time since I met him, I realized that I liked Dr. Getz. Did you ever want out? He leaned back and smiled. I got out. When? Eighteen years ago. I was out for six years. I couldn't believe that Dr. Crawford Getz would ever walk away from medicine. Why did you leave? I couldn't take the sadness anymore. I was going home to my family depressed every day. I had taken my limit of people dying, so I took a job in landscaping. What brought you back? The very thing that drove me away. I left the hospital at five that afternoon. I was picking Megan up at six. I drove home. I had heard about a small theater in the next town over that played independent and classic films. I called them, and they were showing The Philadelphia Story with Katherine Hepburn. Perfect. Olivia opened the door and smiled. Are you and Megan going out? She asked. I nodded. Megan put her hands on Olivia's shoulders, pulling her away from the door. Olivia dragged her father to the door. So, you're the man who's stolen my little girl's heart, he said. I liked Jim Sullivan. He reminded me of my father. No one was getting to his daughters without going through him first. I talked with him and Allison for a few minutes, long enough for them to discover my age, family background, future plans, and social security number, before I helped Megan into my truck. I wanted to take Megan to the Italian restaurant in town, one that made each course a meal in itself, but she wasn't interested. Oh, why don't we go to Macbeth's or someplace where it's not so stuffy? I drove to Chuck's. What's this? Megan asked. This is the best cheeseburger and shake in America, I said, pointing to the half-blown neon sign above the entrance. Megan read the sign and laughed. The best cheeseburger and shake in America. I can't remember all we talked about that night. All I know is that it was effortless with Megan. She was lovely and bright, and I couldn't help but think she was perfect. For me. I refrained from holding Megan's hand during the movie. I didn't even put my arm around her. It was, after all, our first date, and I've always been chicken, so the decision not to do anything was easy for me. The temperature had dropped from the time I had picked Megan up, so after the movie I wrapped my jacket around her and helped her to the truck. I drove her home and scurried her to the front door, lowering my head to avoid the high wind. She got her key out and turned to look at me, shivering. I didn't know what to do, so I smiled and turned to leave. I'll call you, I said. You can kiss me if you want. I turned back around and looked at her. I mean, it's okay if that's what you were thinking. But if it's not what you were thinking, then I've just really embarrassed myself, and I grabbed her and kissed her and forgot about the cold and the wind and the fact that I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning. Days later, I went to one of Megan's cross-country meets and sat fourth bleacher up next to Olivia. Megan looked up from the field and smiled at us. The air was crisp, and I zipped up my jacket and waited for her race to be called. Jim bolted out of his seat the second the gun went off for Megan's first race. 
He pumped his hand in the air, screaming, Go, baby, go, baby, go, baby, as Megan blazed through the woods and across the countryside. Allison cowered in embarrassment, and I laughed. Megan crossed the finish line in first place, and Jim pounded my back, shaking my shoulders. I helped Megan gather her things and walked her to my truck. We hadn't talked about her scholarship offer since her overnight stay in the hospital, but after I saw her run again, I just had to bring it up. When are you going to visit Stanford and Georgetown? She sighed, leaning her head on the back of the seat. I have no idea. I don't know what to do anymore because I really love my coach here. I love the university. She grabbed my hand and smiled. I love everything the city has to offer. But you can't stay here. She turned her head to look out the window. I pulled her shoulders around to face me. You're a star, Megan. You were meant to shine. Those schools have the best running programs in the nation. She wasn't responding. That has to be important for you. Running has got to be one of your dreams, right? Sure, but I've got more dreams than that, she said. Like what? I want the scholarship run to help put kids through college. I nodded. And you can work on that while you're at either school. I want to help change my small part of the world. I nodded again and smiled. You've already done that. What else? I want to fall in love. I'm sure you will, I said. She looked at me and squeezed my hand. I'm sure I already have. I should have told Megan then and there that I loved her, but I didn't. I don't know why. I guess I just assumed there would be plenty of time left for me to do that. Megan grabbed two ibuprofen out of the bathroom cupboard and poured herself a glass of water in the kitchen. The two ibuprofen she'd taken earlier hadn't touched her headache, and she didn't want to be sick on Thanksgiving. Jim sliced the turkey and set it in the middle of the table. Every year the Sullivans went around the table and said what they were thankful for. It was a tradition Allison started when Megan was a baby. Jim set a thick slice of breast meat on Olivia's plate. All right, he said. Olivia's going to start us off this year. I'm thankful for this, she said, pointing to the turkey on her plate. Luke was thankful for the snow that would soon be on its way, which meant early school dismissals. Allison's eyes misted over when she said she was thankful that her husband and her children were all in good health. Mom, you cry every year, Luke said, embarrassed. What are you thankful for, Daddy? Olivia asked. That you're all right here at this table, Jim said. All right, Meg. What are you grateful for this year? What we have together, Megan said. Not everybody has what we have, and we have it year-round, not just one day a year. Allison's eyes were streaming. For heaven's sake, Allison, Jim roared. Go get a towel and mop yourself up so we can eat. Allison snorted through her nose and cried harder. I picked Megan up after my rounds ended. My grandmother had called me twice at the hospital to confirm that Megan was still coming to Thanksgiving dinner. I opened the door to my father's house and Grandma and Rachel were practically sitting on the doorknob waiting for us. I sighed and gave them a look, hoping they'd get the hint and back off. 
They didn't. I tried to lead Megan into the house, but Grandma stopped her, taking her coat. My, what a pretty coat, she said. Is that wool? Megan nodded. I love wool. It's so warm, isn't it? I smiled at Grandma's attempt at small talk. Rachel led Megan to the sofa. I don't know why I'm always amazed at the information women are able to pump out of someone in five minutes or less, but watching the process in action always left me in awe. Megan smiled, but never managed to get out much more than uh-huh or hmm during the grueling interrogation. It didn't matter, though. Grandma had gathered enough information to base her opinion. She's so sweet she whispered on her way into the kitchen. Whatever nerves I had about Megan meeting my family disappeared at the dinner table. She was charming, and her laugh was infectious, even causing Dad to laugh out loud. She somehow managed to choke down her second Thanksgiving meal of the day, mmming and owing after each new thing she tasted. When I stood to take Megan home, Grandma jumped up and hugged her, asking her to come back soon. I walked Megan to the front door of her house and noticed she looked tired. It's probably all the food I've eaten today, she said, laughing. I'll sleep it off and feel great in the morning. You are coming over tomorrow, right? Yes. And the next day? Yes. And the day after that? She smiled, and my heart skipped a beat again. Happy Thanksgiving, she said, leaning in to kiss me. Happy Thanksgiving indeed. I walked back into my father's house, and Grandma was asleep in her chair. Dad was still watching football. I noticed that Rachel wasn't in the room and assumed she was getting ready for bed. Megan's nice, Dad said. I sat down on the sofa watching the game. What's her family like? They're great, I said. Really nice people. Dad looked over at me. She's really pretty, he said. I nodded. Did you kiss her goodnight? I'm trying to watch the game here, Dad, I said. He grinned, and I knew he was trying to get at me. He stood and grabbed his coat out of the closet. I'll just be out for a while, he said, keeping his voice down. I can go get something for you, Dad. I'm just going out for coffee. Grandma snapped to attention in her chair. Dad's shoulders fell, and he rolled his eyes. She still had ears like a bat. Where are you having coffee? She asked, curious. Over at Lydia's house, Dad said, pulling on his gloves before escaping out the door. Grandma threw her arms over her head and kicked her feet in the air, whooping in celebration. And it only took 15 years! I went to find Rachel to tell her one of Grandma's ploys had finally worked. I saw her in Grandma's room, looking through the letters we had written to our mother. I sat beside her on the floor and filed through the notes written with colorful markers, crayons, pencils, or ballpoint pens. I always wonder what she'd look like now, don't you? Rachel asked. I nodded. I always wonder what we would do together now, Rachel continued. For the rest of our lives, we would wonder about so many things. I picked up a letter written in pencil when I was ten. Dear Mom, 
Today, Grandma explained that you know why you died. She said God made sure bad things didn't happen to you. She said someday I'll understand that better. I hope she's right. I love you, Nathan. Rachel picked up a letter and laughed, reading the letter written in crayon on a paper bag. Dear Mommy, I don't like Nathan anymore, so could you send me another brother from heaven? If you can't find one, a dog would be better. Love, Rachel. I snatched the aged letter and looked at it. When did you write this? Last year, she said, breaking into laughter. Now that the holidays were in full swing, staff members took days off here or there, leaving the medical students to help out where necessary. Some of the medical students were even volunteered to help decorate certain floors of the hospital for Christmas. This was my assignment for the day, and I was grateful to get out of the emergency room for a while. I filtered through the boxes of tinsel and bulbs and helped Denise and Claudia spruce up the nurse's station on the pediatrics floor. I even hung tacky icicle lights from the ceiling so they'd dangle over the entire circumference of the desk. I found a small tabletop tree in a box and pulled it onto the desk, straightening each limb. I was going to leave it at the nurse's station when a thought struck me. Digging through the boxes, I found a small string of lights and little bulbs that were perfect for the tree. I poked my head into Hope's room. Knock, knock. Hope looked up and motioned for me to come in. Her mother was sitting beside her on the bed. Who'd like a little Christmas cheer in here? Can I have that to myself? She asked, looking at the small tree in my hands. You can have it but you have to do the work. I put the tree on a cart and rolled it to Hope's bedside. When I returned to Hope's room later in the day to check on her, I laughed out loud at the sight. There sat the tiny tree drooping from the weight of ornaments. Red ribbon hung from the lamps and tinsel surrounded the bed, window, door, and TV. A small wooden nativity sat on the bedstand next to Hope, and a Santa stood on the tabletop next to the tree, swinging his hips from side to side to rockin' around the Christmas tree. The Sullivans dragged the large Douglas fir through the back door, and Jim grunted in satisfaction. Now that's a man's tree, isn't it, Luke? Yeah, Luke said, grunting like his father. Three whacks and this baby was on the ground begging for mercy, Jim said struggling to stand the tree up. Thirty wax is more like it, Allison said. The poor thing was saying, please, just get it over with already. Jim laughed, although no one could see him through the tree's branches. When I stand it up, slip the tree stand under it. Megan tried to help her father lift the tree, but she had no energy. A bout of early morning vomiting had left her nauseous and tired throughout the day. She didn't tell her parents she was sick. Her mother tended to blow even the most minor illnesses out of proportion. We'll be finding pine needles in August, Allison said, bending over to put the stand in place. Before Christmas, Allison? Jim yelled through the mass of needles. These things are killing me. Allison tightened the bolts on the stand, which started a verbal volley of, lean it to the left, more to the right, it's leaning backward now, 
Turn it toward the window, back it up, pull it forward. More, 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 no, move it back again. When the tree was all but decorated, Jim hoisted Olivia into the air to place the angel on the top branch, which just missed the ceiling. Jim turned off all the lights, and the family sat together on the sofa, admiring their work. Allison raised her cup of cider. Here's to the official beginning of another Sullivan family Christmas. May it be the most beautiful one ever. At one in the morning, Megan woke her mother and father. When Jim turned on the light and saw her face, he swept her up in his arms and ran to the car. The ER was quiet. Rory was on duty. He paused when he looked at Megan. Her skin and eyes were yellow in color. I think I have food poisoning, Megan said. It's either that or the worst flu I've ever had. Rory took her temperature, and she was running a high fever. His physical exam revealed that her liver was enlarged and felt firm to the touch. We need to do some blood work, Rory said. Megan groaned. Dr. Getz just drew blood a few days ago. Can't you just read those results? Rory shook his head. You probably weren't jaundiced a few days ago. I'm sorry you had to wait so long, Rory said, pulling open the curtain. Another doctor was with him. But I wanted Dr. Lucas, one of our gastroenterologists, to read these results, as well as one of our infectious disease specialists. Allison and Jim were quiet, staring at Rory Dr. Dr. Lucas. I'm Dr. Lucas, Meg took the doctor. Blood tests revealed that your hepatic enzymes are elevated. We'd like to do a needle biopsy of your liver to rule hepatitis. When? Meg asked. Right away. Dr. Lucas clutched Megan's fire her chest, walked to the room, Jim sensed a few rips from apology. Dr. Lucas paused to be and Megan had been waiting for the last few hours for the biopsy reports for pathology. The biopsy is showing an undifferentiated hepatitis. What is that? Megan asked. Dr. Lucas paused and took a breath. You have something that is causing your liver to be inflamed. Normally, we can identify that as hepatitis A, B, or C, but in your case, we can't identify the cause. She hasn't done anything to get hepatitis, Jim said. This is a viral hepatitis, Dr. Lucas said. But where did it come from? Allison asked. We can't determine what the infectious agent was. It could be a million things. What will you do? Jim asked. Dr. Lucas hated this part of her job. She held tighter to the file and looked at Megan. Judging by your biopsy, this is progressing at a rapid pace. I've contacted a transplant surgeon to speak with you as soon as possible. My rotation started at six. I figured I'd call Megan later in the morning once I knew she was up. At 10, I reached for the phone on the nurse's station, but stopped when a folder in a stack of files caught my eye. Megan's name was on it. I scanned it and snapped my head up, looking for Rory. He was in the lounge getting his things together to go home. He was still answering my questions as I bounded up the stairs. Here I am, Megan said, back at my favorite vacation destination. I glanced at Jim and Allison, who looked like they'd logged ten years in the last nine hours. I snatched her chart at the end of her bed and glanced over it, 
feeling my heart beat faster as I read the notes Dr. Lucas had written. Vital signs stable, patient condition jaundiced and deteriorating. Biopsy report shows fulminant hepatitis. I could hear myself breathing. Full-blown hepatitis. Then I read, Consult transplant team. It felt as if the wind had been knocked out of me and I couldn't speak. I kept staring at the chart. Megan motioned for me to sit on the side of her bed. Dr. Lucas said there's the possibility of finding a living donor. I nodded. Since the liver regenerates itself, a portion is all that is necessary for a successful transplant. Jim and Allison's hopes would soon be dashed when they learned that neither of them nor extended family members were a close enough match. I immediately went through the tests and would learn later that even Dr. Getz was tested. None of us came close enough to matching. You doctors are always so serious, Megan said, comforting me. She grabbed my hand and held it tight. You always forget that Christmas is full of miracles. A thick, dry knot formed in my throat. I knew otherwise. How many times did I pray for a miracle? How many times did I beg God to heal my mother and make her well? I knew that miracles still happened, but I also knew that sometimes it was as if the heavens were silent. Dr. Getz pushed a wheelchair to Megan's room. For milady, he said. I can walk, Dr. Getz, she said. He pointed to the chair. Hospital policy, sit. He pushed her through the halls and into the elevator. Jim pulled the car around, and Dr. Getz pushed Megan to the curb, opening the car door for her. He helped her out of the chair and held on to her, afraid she might fall on the melted snow on the pavement. I can walk on my own, Dr. Getz, she said. I know you can, he said but I might fall. He helped her into the car. Then he did something he'd never done with any of his patients. He kissed her forehead. He closed the door, and Megan waved at him through the window. He felt a catch in his throat and put his head down to avoid eye contact with anyone who might stop him to talk. Then he pushed the chair back into the hospital. After my rounds, I made my way to the lounge and tried to open my locker. It was jammed. I jiggled the handle, but the locker wouldn't budge. I leaned my head on the locker. This isn't happening again. In anger, I beat my fists into the locker and pounded it over and over and over. Why did I meet her? I couldn't go through it again. I couldn't watch someone I love get weaker every day until death finally snatched her away. In one of her letters, my mother wrote, Life never has and never will be fair, Nathan. I won't be the only person you lose. There will be others. You'll stand by their side as they lie dying or beside their grave in a cemetery, and it's there that you'll have to make a decision. You can either lean into God or turn away. It will always be your choice, Nathan, not his. I closed my eyes. She never turned away. Even in death, my mother chose to go through the pain with God rather than without him. I didn't know if I could make that same decision. There are days when I can remember everything Megan and I did together over the next three weeks. Then there are days when I can't remember anything at all. 
she would turn off all the lights in her living room, leaving only the lights on the tree to light up the room. And we'd sit there for hours and talk about everything, or we'd watch the lights on the tree and say nothing at all. Megan woke to sounds of her mother in the kitchen. She tiptoed through the living room and stuck her head around the corner. Allison was making every effort to be quiet, closing cabinets and removing bowls and pans with care. What are you doing, Mom? Megan asked. Allison jumped at her voice. Don't scare me, Megan. I'm getting too old. Did I wake you? No. What are you making? Peanut butter fudge. Her mother made it every year for Christmas, along with date balls, cookies by the dozen, and homemade candy. Megan ran back toward her room. I'm going to change and come help you. Allison stopped her. I can do it, Meg. Just lie on the couch and rest. Megan stopped in the hallway and turned back to her mother. Would you stop treating me like a baby, Mom? I wasn't. I was trying to treat you like normal. Well, you're not, Mom. If you were, you'd talk about what's happening. Allison stuck her head in the refrigerator. See, you're avoiding it right now. Allison pulled out a pound of butter and set it on the counter. Mom, look at me. Allison looked at Megan. A transplant might never become available. Tears pooled in Allison's eyes. Don't say that, Megan. Mom, you heard the doctors. I either get a transplant or... Tears fell down Allison's face as she cut Megan off. Please don't say that, Megan, she whispered. I can't think about... She couldn't finish. She picked up a dishcloth and buried her face in it. Do you know what I want more than anything, Mom? Allison looked up. What? I want to help you make peanut butter fudge. Allison tried to laugh and handed Megan a bowl. They spent the morning talking and laughing as one Christmas treat after another was prepared. When Megan lay down to rest after lunch, Allison cleaned up the mess in the kitchen, turning the TV up to drown out the sound of her crying. Megan was lying on the sofa. Nausea had hit her hard that morning, and she had vomited right before everyone came to visit. Charlie sat on a chair with two of Megan's teammates, who were perched on each arm of the chair. Leslie grinned as he turned three shades of red when one of the girls would flirt with him, teasing him about being Megan's secret coach. Before Megan let the girls leave, she grilled them about how much money they were raising for the race. Trust me, Michelle said. They're all working hard. You're going to raise more money for this run than you ever imagined. Megan's teammates filed out the door, rubbing Charlie's head for good luck. As soon as the winter break was over, they'd all be at practice again and told Megan they expected her there. Megan was quiet. Everyone was always so cheerful, taking great strides to step around any questions about her illness. With the exception of, how do you feel? Nobody asked anything else. Nobody, that is, except Charlie. He sat down beside Megan. Are you getting sicker every day? Megan knew she'd have to tell him the truth. Yes. He was quiet. When will you have to go back to the hospital? I don't know, she said. But she knew it would be soon.
I got to Megan's late one day. I was doing the workup of a patient that took longer than expected, and I could hear time tick away in my ears as one thing after another kept me at the hospital for another hour. I walked into her house and found her on the sofa. Would you take me to the park? She asked. I drove to the park and opened my door, but she stopped me. I just want to look at it, she said, watching ice skaters on the lake. She looked at the small gazebo on the other side of the lake. Someone had decorated it for Christmas with huge red bows, swags of spruce, and bright colored lights. Snow clung to colored bulbs that covered a huge evergreen in the middle of the park. I can't believe it's almost Christmas, she said. She was quiet as she watched two runners make their way past my truck and around the lake. Was your mother afraid when she died? The question took me off guard. No. She kept watching the runners. When you think about her now, do you remember the way she died or how she lived? How she lived? She nodded. She watched as the runners made one loop after another around the lake. Tears filled her eyes and made their way down her face and over her chin, spilling onto her hands. I'm never going to run again, she said. It's funny how you draw up a plan for your life. Her voice was stronger now. Then something happens that proves you wrong. She was crying harder, and I pulled her to me, wrapping my arms around her. I don't want to leave my family, she said, sobbing. I don't want to leave you, Nathan. We have to hold on for your miracle, Meg, I said, holding on to her. I opened my door and slid her off the seat into my arms. I walked down the slope leading to the path around the lake and started to carry her around it. What are you doing? she asked. I pulled her closer and picked up my pace, running. A few runners ran off to the side, staring as I ran with Megan in my arms. She lifted an arm up toward the sky and squinted into the sun, feeling the wind on her face. She smiled. She was running around the lake she loved. Megan was admitted to the hospital on a Thursday. Her condition was declining, so physicians would no longer permit her to stay home. Doctors would keep her as comfortable as possible and do everything they could to keep her from catching even a common cold. They had to keep her as healthy as possible. I had planned to stay at my dad's for Christmas break, but when Megan got sick, I decided to stay in my apartment, closer to the hospital. I finished up my rounds on the 23rd and gathered my things to leave. I said goodbye to everyone and walked out the doors leading to the parking lot. They closed behind me and I stopped. It felt so final, as if they were closing forever, but I couldn't take the time to think about that. Not now, anyway. I visited Megan when Allison took Luke and Olivia home. I sat down on the side of her bed and could feel that something was wrong. She wasn't looking at me. I reached for her hand, but she moved it onto her chest. For the last two days, it felt as if she was distancing herself from me. I started to speak. Are you... She turned toward me. Tears were on her face. I can't do this to you, she said. Do what? I asked, confused. I can't put you through this again. 
Megan, you're not going to sit around and wait for me to die like you did your mother. Nobody deserves to go through that again. She turned her face away. Please go, Nathan. I turned her face with my hands. What are you talking about? Let me decide what I should or shouldn't do. I don't want you to come see me here. It's too hard. She was sobbing. Jim ran into the room and looked at us. Daddy, please make Nathan leave. Jim squeezed my shoulder as I walked out the door. I drove the hour to my dad's. He and Grandma weren't expecting me. Grandma was already in bed for the night. Dad made a pot of coffee and sat across the table from me. I was so tired I could have put my head on the table and slept there for the night. I held the cup between my hands and swirled the black liquid up one side and down the other. How's Megan? Dad asked. Not good. She's getting weaker. I paused. How are you? He asked. I bit the inside of my mouth. I tried to hold back the tears. She said she doesn't want to see me again. She said she can't put me through it again. Can you go through it again? Dad asked. Yes, I whispered. Then that's where you need to be. I kept my eyes on the table. Dad, I said, do you think it's possible to fall in love after knowing someone for only a couple of months? I fell in love with your mother the first day I met her, he said. So a couple of months seems long to me. I just keep wondering why I met her, I said. Why did I have to meet her? Because you were supposed to love her, Dad said. His words struck me hard. I felt my shoulders shaking. Tears were on my face, but I was silent. Dad pulled my head into his chest, and I grabbed onto him, sobbing. Love her while you can, he said, bending low to my ear. Love her as long as you can. I drove to my apartment and pulled out the letters from my mother. I glanced through them and found the one I was looking for. Dear Nathan, you'll wish that I could be there with you to meet a girlfriend or fix your tie on your wedding day or hold your children, but don't dwell on the pain. Focus on the happiness that you feel on those days and the happiness that I had as your mother. If I was given another five, ten, or forty years, I don't think I could be happier than I was during these 34 years, because it's not about how long you live, but how you live and who you love, and I loved you more than you'll ever know. I felt tears run across my cheeks. She went on. The pain you feel now will help you care for others, Nathan. It will help you love them through the hardest times. Remember when we looked at the valley together on top of the ridge last year? Regardless of the pain or sorrow you go through in the valley, there will always be love at the end. It may be hard to walk through, but God will use your time there for good. I know he will. I folded the letter, slipping it back inside the envelope, and grabbed my keys. The ICU was quiet. Megan had been asleep for hours. I saw Jim sitting in a chair in the waiting room. He was half asleep. I walked toward him, and he opened his eyes when he heard my footsteps. 
I sat down beside him. She can say whatever she wants, but I'm not going anywhere, I said. Jim clapped my shoulder and rested his hand there. Sometime in the early morning hours, we both drifted to sleep. I stirred when I heard a nurse on the phone giving her husband a list of what to buy at the grocery store. Jim was still asleep. I walked into Megan's room and stood next to her bed. She turned toward me and opened her eyes. Just so you know, I said, whispering, I'm just as stubborn as you are, and I'm not going anywhere. She was too tired to argue. She smiled and fell back to sleep. Someone was always with Megan. Sometimes two or three of us were in the room at the same time. The nurses disregarding hospital policy regarding the number of ICU visitors. Are we driving you crazy? Allison asked, brushing Megan's hair off her face. Megan smiled. She was getting too tired to sit up, let alone speak. She fell asleep, and Allison and Jim slipped out of the room. They were never gone long. They would take just enough time to cry alone in the bathroom or wander the halls hoping to find a miracle hidden in the cracks of the floor or behind a door. Jim pulled the small fake tree through the door and set it on a rolling cart in Megan's room. Olivia followed, carrying two big bags that were bigger than her, and Luke had strings of lights hanging around his neck. They decorated the tree while Megan watched, and Jim hauled in a huge plastic bag filled with presents. Charlie and Leslie dropped by later in the morning. Megan pointed out a gift under the tree, and Charlie picked it up. Open it, she said. It's for you. But I don't have anything for you, he said. That's not fair. Don't argue on Christmas Eve. Just open it. Charlie tore the paper and pulled out several ribbons and trophies. For my coach, she said, watching Charlie's eyes. Why are you giving me all your trophies and ribbons? You were the one who annoyed me so much and made all those impossible demands like take two more seconds off. No, I changed my mind. Take ten. Charlie raised his eyebrows and smiled. I just try to do my job. He sat on the edge of her bed and grew quiet. It's coming, isn't it? What? Megan asked. Your Christmas miracle. I hope so, she said. I know so, Charlie said. I didn't know if we'd get any time alone on Christmas Day, so when Jim took Luke and Olivia home for the day and Allison slipped away to the cafeteria, I handed Megan her gift. Yours is under the tree, she said. I found it, a small box covered with red paper. Open yours first, I said. She ran her finger under the tape and pulled at the wrapping. Her mouth opened when she saw it. I saw it hanging in a store window. I was walking toward Gunther's Sports in my hometown to pick up some new fishing equipment for Dad's Christmas present. It had just started to snow, so I put my head down. I glanced up to say hello to someone in front of Wilson's department store when something caught my eye in the window. I walked closer and stared. How did it get here, of all places? I ran inside and a clerk lifted it out of the window and handed it to me. I tried to make out the name in the corner, but couldn't. 
Who painted this? I asked the clerk. She shrugged her shoulders. It was beautiful. The giant oak with snow clinging to every limb. The lake was frozen over. You could just make out footprints on the path surrounding it. And even the gazebo was there, decorated for Christmas. It's so beautiful, Megan said, holding the painting in her hands. She arched her brows and looked at the gift in my hand. I tore into the paper and opened the small box. There was a runner's wrist stopwatch inside. I read the card she had tucked under the bow. In case you can't find someone to pace yourself with. I smiled and leaned down and kissed her. I found someone to pace myself with, I said. It was there, in the quiet of her hospital room as she held on to a painting of the park she adored, that I told Megan I loved her. On Christmas morning, I watched as the Sullivans unwrapped one gift after another, and it seemed everyone, including Megan, forgot she was ill. Jim waded through the sea of wrapping paper and pulled out a lone gift sitting at the back of the tree with Megan's name on it. One more gift, he said, handing it to her. No name on it. This one must be from Santa, Megan said, taking the gift from her father. She unwrapped the green foil and saw a beautiful silver frame with a stained glass star on each side. She stared at the picture inside, one of the night sky twinkling with thousands of stars. Just in case you get too busy at Stanford or Georgetown to go out and look at them, Jim said, you can hold this up and we'll still be looking at them together. Megan smiled, holding the picture. You're still my star, Jim whispered, kissing her. You'll always be my star. Leslie Bennett drove 10-year-old Matthew to her mother and father's house. They were supposed to spend the morning with her parents after opening gifts at their own house, but Charlie still wasn't awake at seven, and Matthew could barely contain himself. He just had to get at those presents. Leslie decided to drive Matthew to her parents' house. At least he could open a couple of gifts there. Maybe that would appease him until Charlie woke up. Rich rinsed out the dishes from breakfast and started to unload the dishwasher when he heard a knock at the door. Before he could dry his hands and get to the living room, whoever had knocked was already gone. He opened the door and saw a plain white envelope sticking to the door with a large red bow attached to it. He ripped it open and pulled out $1,000 in cash. Rich ran into the yard and spun around in all directions, looking for a car or anyone in the street. He bolted into the house to call Leslie, and as he was telling her what happened, he heard another knock at the door. He threw the phone down on the counter and ran to the door. Again, no one was there, but another envelope with a bow swayed in the cold air. Rich snatched it off and ran into the yard again, spinning on his heels. He opened it and breathlessly counted another wad of money as Leslie listened. One thousand dollars, he shouted into the phone. Tears filled Leslie's eyes. What's going on? She whispered. I don't know, Rich shouted. I don't know. Then there was another rap at the door. There's another knock. 
He threw the phone down and raced to the door, throwing it open and running to the yard before anyone could get away, but again, there was no one there. He snatched the envelope from the door. His heart pounded as he picked up the phone. It's another envelope, Les. His hand shook as he opened it and the money fell to the counter. It's more money, he said, choking on the words. It's $2,000. Leslie cried on the other end. Megan was right. Christmas was the season for miracles. There was just enough money to help them pay off bills that had accumulated over the past two months. Leslie sat down and held the phone to her ear, crying. They racked their brains trying to imagine who might have done such a thing. Everyone, people from the hospital to Charlie's school and their neighbors, had already been so good to them. They would never know who left the money so they could thank them. But sometimes, giving is all the thanks that some people ever need. Charlie visited Megan in the afternoon, bringing a framed picture of the two of them together, taken after one of her cross-country meets. I should have known the best gift would be from you, she said, making him smile. As they talked, Megan drifted off to sleep. Charlie looked up at me, frightened. I led him down the hall into the waiting room. It's the medications, Charlie, I said, trying to ease his mind. He was quiet for the longest time. Do you think she'd run through the gates of heaven? Or would that be the wrong thing to do? I think you can probably go through the gates any way you like. He thought for a moment. Then I'd definitely run through them. He smiled. It'd be the only time I ever ran without having to sit down and rest. I put my hand around his shoulder. We sat quietly, and I could hear the clock ticking on the wall in front of me. It's strange how deafening time can be when you want it to slow down. Are you going to hover around my bed all day? Megan asked late in the afternoon. I threw my hands in the air. Are you trying to get rid of me again? She reached for my hand. Please go be with your family for a while. I sat down next to her. They know I'm here. But it's Christmas. It's only an hour away, 30 minutes the way you drive. Please go see them. There's nothing for you to do here anyway. She's stubborn like her mother, Jim said. He put his hand on my back. Why don't you take a break and go be with your family? Everything in me said I shouldn't go, but Megan was adamant. You can go eat dinner with your family and be back here by 10. I'll be back by 8. You can't drive there, eat, open presents, and be back here by 8. 10 o'clock. 9. I leaned down and I kissed her. I love you, I said. She held my face and looked me in the eyes. I love you too. Now leave. On the way to my father's house, I took a turn leading to the cemetery. Our family visited my mother's grave every Christmas, but for whatever reason I decided to swing by there first before going home. I parked and grabbed the sack off the front seat. I hoofed my way up the road to my mother's tombstone and found it covered with ice. I put the sack down and started clearing the leaves and debris from the stone. I caught movement in my eye and looked up to see a man carrying a wreath and poinsettias. We said hello to each other, 
and I think I wished him a Merry Christmas, I don't know. He went about his business, carrying on with his work as I finished mine. I brought the shoes, Mom, I said, opening the sack and placing the glittery beaded pair on her tombstone. The wind picked up, and I pulled my coat up around my neck. I've met a girl, Mom. My throat tightened, and I ran my fingers over the letters on the stone. I can't imagine my life without her in it now. The wind shrieked and drowned out my voice. I positioned the shoes so the light caught them, reflecting off the sequence just so. I wish you were here with us, Mom. I wish that for the rest of my life. Grandma pulled me inside the door, taking my coat from me. She studied my eyes before she gave me a kiss. You didn't have to come, she said. Meg made me come. Her eyes filled with tears, and she kissed me again. I tried to eat my plate full of turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and peas, but I couldn't help but think I'd done something terrible in leaving the hospital. In my heart, I knew I should have stayed. We set the dishes aside and unwrapped our gifts by the tree. Rachel and I got Grandma a red silk wrap. Grandma pulled the wrap from the box and ran it through her fingers. What in the world will I do with something this beautiful? It looks like something the Queen of England would wear. Wear it in the house, Rachel said. Grandma gasped at the thought. I couldn't wear this in the house. The neighbors could see me and think I was being uppity. Dad reached under the tree for an oversized gift with Grandma's name on it. Isn't anybody else having Christmas around here? She asked, tearing into the wrapping. She waded through layers of tissue paper before finding an envelope at the bottom of the box. She opened it, and her mouth dropped open. What in the world? Rachel laughed and scooted next to her on the sofa. It's a ticket for a seven-day cruise. For once, Grandma sat speechless. Aunt Kathy and Uncle Brian and everybody pitched in. Grandma held the ticket in front of her as if handling the Hope Diamond. I can't go on a cruise by myself, she whispered. Lorraine's going with you, Rachel said. Dad opened the door, and Lorraine cha-chaed her way through the living room, wearing a bright red sweatsuit with a big smiling reindeer sequin to the back. Grandma laughed and sprang to her feet, grabbing Lorraine's hands in midair. They laughed and cried like young girls, planning when to go and what to wear. Watching them, I was grateful Megan had made me come. I shoved the last of the wrapping paper and empty boxes into a garbage bag and was about to take it out the back door when the doorbell rang. A man around my father's age stood on the front porch wearing a brown leather jacket and holding a piece of paper in his hand. I assumed he was one of Dad's customers. I opened the storm door to speak with him. Are you Nathan? I told him I was. He looked at me before extending his hand. My name is Robert Layton. I think you and I know each other. When he heard a man's voice, Dad walked into the living room, and I thought for sure he would take over from there. But Dad looked at the man as if he'd also never seen him before. I'm Robert Layton, he said again, shaking my father's hand. 
I don't mean to disturb you, but I wanted to be sure to catch someone at home, and I was hoping it would be you, he said, looking at me. Grandma and Rachel walked into the living room, and Robert did his introduction for the third time. I don't mean to interrupt your Christmas, so I'll make this quick. This is going to sound strange, but I met Nathan 15 years ago at Wilson's department store. I bought him a pair of sparkly shoes. I was stunned. Even as a child, I remembered a man had bought the shoes for me, but I could never picture his face. I only remember grabbing the shoes and running. That was you, I said. How did you find me? He held up the piece of paper. We met again at the cemetery. In my mind, I could see Robert holding the wreath and poinsettias. I didn't know it was you until I was leaving and the shoes on top of your mother's tombstone caught my eye. I wrote down the information and called a friend at the newspaper. I hope that wasn't too intrusive, but I'd let you get away one Christmas. I didn't want it to happen again. A small tear fell down my grandmother's cheek. Days after Maggie died, Nathan told us how he got those shoes, she said in a whisper. You showed up at that store just like an angel. Robert smiled and cleared his throat, laughing. I wasn't an angel, believe me. I was on the verge of losing my family when I saw Nathan that Christmas Eve. We were captivated as Robert told us the story of his marriage to Kate and about his two girls. Kate had told him that the marriage was over. Robert was in Wilson's that night buying gifts for the last Christmas they'd spend together as a family. It changed my life when I met you. I still can't explain it. All I know is that nothing mattered to me more at that moment than my family. So I threw everything down and went home to my wife and kids. Really went home for the first time in years. He stopped and cleared his throat again. Anyway, I just wanted to thank you. He grabbed hold of me and wrapped his arms around me, pounding my back. Dad jumped up to serve Robert a cup of coffee. Grandma and Rachel went to clean the kitchen, leaving Robert and me alone. I asked about Robert's work. It's just a small practice, he said. There was a time when I had dreams of owning a huge practice. You know, 14 floors of associates and partners with a penthouse office overlooking the river. Now that dream seems absurd. He came equipped with pictures of his grandson and several of Kate and their two daughters and son-in-law. Robert was obviously a man in love with his family. At the cemetery, you told me you're studying medicine, he said. I didn't remember telling him that. I made the conversation quick and told him I had just finished my last few days of school because it felt like the right thing to do. Do you have a girlfriend at school? he asked. I'm just wondering what she thinks. I looked down at my watch. I needed to go, but for some reason I wanted to tell Robert everything about Megan. I told him about the scholarship race she was organizing, and recognition of some kind registered on his face, but Robert only nodded, letting me ramble on till he was certain I had finished. We exchanged phone numbers with promises to stay in touch. I walked Robert to the door and shook his hand. He had parked on the street, and I watched as he got into his car. He drove away, and I closed the door. I pulled on my coat to leave for the hospital when the phone rang. It was eight o'clock, 
My foot was on the first step when my father stopped me. I looked at him. It was the same face I remember 15 years ago when he told me my mother died. In the course of only a few hours, Megan's condition was deteriorating. Megan opened her eyes and saw both her parents at her side. I always knew what I had, she whispered. Allison stroked her face and put her ear closer to Megan. What? I always knew what I had. I always knew I was loved. Jim leaned forward and kissed her face. I always knew you loved each other. So many kids never know that. Allison held on to Megan's hand, letting her tears fall between her lips. Megan looked at her dad and squeezed his hand. Remind Mom that it's okay to be sad for a while, but not forever. He struggled to smile and kissed her again. I love you, Daddy. I always knew that there was no place on earth that you'd rather be than with us. Jim picked up her hand and kissed it again and again. You are the gift we always prayed for, he said, stroking her cheek. You are more than we ever imagined. He leaned down and pulled her to him. I'm not going to say goodbye, Jim said, his tears falling onto Megan's shoulders. I'm going to keep holding you and never say goodbye. Show the stars to Luke and Olivia, Dad, Megan said. Olivia will get bored, but show them to her anyway. Megan pulled away from her father and reached for Allison. Tell them I love them, Mom. Will you tell them over and over for me? Allison smiled and smoothed Megan's hair. And when Olivia asks why I'm not home, will you help her understand? Tears streamed down Allison's face as she nodded. When I got to the hospital, Megan was sleeping. I walked to her bedside and looked at her face. She was beautiful, too beautiful to believe she was ill. I held her hand and kissed it, holding it to my face. This is why Dr. Getz left medicine, I thought, looking at her. And this is why he came back. Megan opened her eyes and smiled. How is your family? She said. Her voice was getting weak. I never should have gone. She held up her hand. Yes, you should have. Tell me how it was. I sat down and told her about Grandma's gift and how she and Lorraine acted like young girls again, and Megan smiled. She wanted to hear more, so I told her about Robert, and her eyes widened. That's the miracle, Nathan. I couldn't imagine what she meant. Robert came back into your life on Christmas. I told you there's always a Christmas miracle. Her eyes were dancing. She wanted nothing more than to convince me. But what about your miracle, Meg? She put her hand on my face. I have my miracle. I shook my head. I couldn't leave without falling in love. So God brought you to me. A tear ran down my face. He brought you to me because you know how to love people, Nathan. You know how to care. 
Megan ran her hand down the side of my face. That's why you were meant to be a doctor, because you listen from here. She touched my chest, resting her hand over my heart. Not everyone can do that, but you can. It's your gift. I tried to speak, but felt a knot in my throat. She lifted her hand to stop me. You take the good with the bad. It's all part of the package, remember? I leaned down and held her face next to mine, feeling her breath on my cheek. Please let her live, I prayed. Oh God, please don't let this happen. We talked for as long as we could before Megan grew tired and closed her eyes. Jim and Allison stood beside me, and we watched her breathe and waited. It was the only thing left to do. It was a few minutes before 11 when Dr. Getz ran into Megan's room and told us a liver was available. Seconds later, two orderlies came into the room and pushed Megan's bed down the hall. We ran into the hall, prepared to follow, but Dr. Getz stopped us. He told us about Megan's donor. It was the miracle Megan had been holding on to, but it came at such a price. It was late on Christmas night, and Charlie was on the sofa with Rich, flipping through the picture book of Alaska he had unwrapped that morning. Charlie had already looked through it several times, but was now going through it page by page with Rich. Tell me about Alaska, Dad. Which part? All of it. I want to hear about the birds with the colorful bills that sit on the water, and about the dolphins and whales and the mountains. But we're going to go there someday. Then you'll see it all for yourself. Tell me now, Dad, he said, whispering. Tell me now so I can see it. Rich wrapped his arm around Charlie and pulled him closer, resting Charlie's head on his shoulder, and began to tell him one story after another till Charlie closed his eyes. Death was quiet when it came that night. Several minutes into his story, Rich heard Charlie's breathing stop and screamed for Leslie. They called for an ambulance, but knew it was too late. His heart had stopped. Somehow, in the middle of their grief, Rich and Leslie made it known that Charlie wanted his liver to be tested to see if it could be a match for Megan, and that he wanted any of his healthy organs to help anyone who needed them. Rich thought Charlie's liver might have been damaged from medications, but it was healthy and as close to an ideal match as possible. It was an indescribable, bittersweet miracle that left all of us conflicted with feelings of loss and joy, grief and hope. Soon after my mother died, my grandmother scribbled something on a pink notepad and taped it to her bathroom mirror. It read, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It is love that requires us to do the hardest thing in impossible situations. It was love that compelled Rich and Leslie Bennett to think of someone else's life during their greatest tragedy. William went with me to the funeral. 
We walked into the church together, which overflowed with members of the church, along with Megan's team, who loved Charlie. Denise and Claudia and several of the pediatric staff members sat in a row together. William and I sat a few rows behind Jim, Luke, and Olivia. Allison stayed with Megan in the hospital. Charlie's teacher spoke at his funeral, along with Dr. Getz and the minister. Charlie would have been embarrassed at the fuss everyone was making. I could see him cracking his knuckles in nervous anticipation of the whole thing just being over and done. William and I stepped outside the church at the end of the service, and the wind shrieked when I opened the door. I felt a little hand grab mine, and I looked down to see Olivia. It's so cold, Olivia, I said, leading her toward the door. Why don't you go back inside? My mom says Charlie isn't here. She said he's already in heaven. That's right. The wind picked up her hair, and she closed her eyes. I pulled the hood of her coat over her head. Did God take Charlie to heaven so Megan could live? I sat down on the top step so I could look at her. No, I said. God didn't take Charlie to heaven. He received him. There's a big difference. She looked at me, trying to understand what I was saying. Life took Charlie away from us. Why? Because he was human. After the funeral, I drove to my father's house, but he, Rachel, and Grandma weren't home. I noticed photo albums and the box of letters strewn on top of my grandmother's bed. It looked as if she was in the middle of cleaning out her closet. I reached for a letter that was sitting on top and opened it, recognizing my handwriting as a teenager. Dear Mom, I often wonder how those doctors treated you when you went to the hospital for tests. I wonder how they made you feel. Did they scare you, or were they good to you, sitting by your side and making you feel safe? I wonder if they took the time to talk and get to know you. I wonder if they ever knew what a great mom you were, or how you could make Dad laugh. I wonder if they felt bad when you passed away, or if they even knew. I wonder if they realized what the world missed when you died. I miss you and love you every day. Nathan. I held on to the letter as tears blurred my vision. It contained the reasons why I wanted to become a physician. Not because I thought I could save everyone, but because I wanted each patient to know that he or she was being cared for to the very end. It was what my mother had tried to teach me before she died. The pain of living without her would help me care for others. It wasn't a weakness as I had thought for so long. It was my gift, just as Megan said. I showered and reached toward the bathroom counter for the watch my mother had given me. I picked it up and looked at the time. It was running ten minutes behind. I flipped it over to the inscription on the back. With all the love in the world, Mom. I ran my finger over the inscription and pulled out a piece of paper from my backpack and sat down at the table and began writing. Dear Mom, I think it's time to put away the watch you gave me. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means it's time to move on. All the love in the world, Nathan. 
I put the watch and letter next to a picture of my mother and me on top of the chest of drawers and reached for the watch Megan had given me. I put it on and finished dressing. My time at the hospital was done, but I went there anyway and lingered around a closed office door. Dr. Getz arrived a few minutes later with a cup of coffee in his hand. Come on in, he said, unlocking the door. He looked tired. It had been a rough week. He offered me a seat, and I sat down, unzipping my coat. I knew he was wondering why I was there. Do patients know they're dying? Some of them do. Do you think he knew? I think he always knew. That's why he lived the way he did. Do you ever get used to it? He leaned back in his chair and sighed, looking at the ceiling. No. He looked at me. But you learn to accept it. He was quiet. Sometimes it's just harder to accept. Though I had gone over what I wanted to say several times in my head, I found myself stammering for the right words. I would like to be part of your rotation again. Dr. Getz stirred his coffee and stared at me. Why? Because someone recently told me that you need to run with somebody better than you. Dr. Getz smiled. He understood the reference. That if I want to be the best, I have to run with the best. He sipped his coffee. What makes you think you can stick it out this time? Because I can't just leave. If I could walk away, I would. But I'd never be happy. He leaned back and studied my face. I knew he believed me. And, to answer your question, medicine is a calling. He nodded, and I could see the corners of his mouth turn up just a bit. There are things that I cannot tolerate from med students, Mr. Andrews. If you arrive late for a rotation, that shows me that... I held up my wrist, stopping him. That will never happen again. I have a new watch. He smiled. Dr. Getz, I need to apologize to you because I've made a lot of mistakes and... So, are you here to waste my morning by telling me all the mistakes you've made? Or are you here to start over? I'd like to start over, I said, smiling. Denise looked inside Megan's room. Megan had been moved out of ICU only days earlier into the step-down unit. People are calling from all over about the scholarship run, Denise said. Two separate law firms alone have donated $5,000 each. Jim and Allison sat in silence, listening. Just within the last several days, $25,000 has been donated. Megan gasped. Allison threw her hands over her face and cried. The scholarship fund would be bigger than Megan had ever dreamed. My mind recalled a piece of conversation I had had with Megan. Some attorney in Jefferson gave $500, she said. Could Robert Layton be that attorney? I followed Denise into the hallway and looked over the donation sheets. There it was, Leighton and Associates for $500. I called him, and Robert asked me to bring Dad and Grandma to his house that weekend for dinner. When we arrived, Kate opened the door. She was a beautiful woman. I could see why Robert fell for her nearly 30 years ago. 
She threw open her arms and wrapped them around me. You really do exist. Robert walked in and greeted all of us with a hug, then said, Can I bring out some more d'oeuvres and drinks for everybody? Let me help with that, I said, following Robert into the kitchen. How's Megan today? he asked. She's great. Doctors see improvement every day. Does she know about Charlie? Her mom and dad told her about a week after the funeral. She didn't take the news very well. How could she? Robert didn't say anything. There was nothing anyone could ever say. I looked at Robert and tried to think of a way to ask him about the donations to the scholarship run. He gave me an opening. What's up? He said. There's been this outpouring of donations for Megan's scholarship run from lawyers and companies that the hospital hasn't heard of, people the Sullivans don't even know. Robert was listening with interest. He knew I was onto him. It seems that someone is doing some staggering fundraising for this run. Robert was nonchalant. Probably a friend of hers who wants to help. It seems to me that this friend is someone the Sullivans have never met. Robert pulled glasses from the cupboard and began filling them with ice. The Sullivans are going to need help with the money. They need someone to walk them through setting up a trust or something. Robert nodded. I know a few firms who would be glad to help. I'll have Jody get a package of info to you, and you can pass it on to the Sullivans. No one would ever know who was working so hard behind the scenes for Megan's run, and somehow that suited Robert just fine. Megan was right. Robert's coming back into my life was one of the small miracles of Christmas. I spoke with Robert's assistant about the package of info he'd pulled together for the Sullivans. It's ready, Jody said. How do you want me to get it to you? I can just swing by and pick it up. That'll be out of your way, though. I have to drive by Bryan Park on my way home every day. Do you know where that is? We agreed to meet in the park at the end of the workday. I drove around the parking lot looking for anyone sitting in a car, but when I couldn't spot anyone, I parked my truck and watched people ice skating on the lake. The runner with the neon ball cap made her way around the lake as I waited. She made another lap before she slowed down and walked the hill toward the cars. She caught me watching her, and I looked away, fidgeting with the buttons on my stereo. I jumped when I heard a small rap on my window. I looked up and saw the neon cap. I rolled the window down and looked at her, wondering what she wanted. Are you Nathan? How did she know my name? Are you Robert's friend? Are you Jody? I whispered. I am. She extended her hand through the window. Nice to meet you. I reached up, grabbed her hand, and pumped it up and down, laughing. In June, hundreds of runners lined up in front of the courthouse. A banner stretched high above the street, the Charlie Bennett Scholarship Run. Hospital administrators and medical staff were out in force wearing matching yellow T-shirts with the name of the run on the front and the name of the department they worked in on the back. Denise and Claudia were busy corralling the pediatrics department, who were the noisiest by far. Dr. Getz held on to a streetlight and stretched. Don't fail me now, he said each time he stretched a muscle. Dad, along with Lydia, Grandma, Rachel, and Lorraine, 
lined up next to William, Robert, and Kate, and Jody. Jim pushed Megan through the crowd in a wheelchair. It was the only way doctors would let her participate. Earlier in the morning, we had gone to Bryan Park, and Jim and I unloaded a bench from the back of my truck and set it under the oak tree by the lake. Rich and Leslie were there along with my family. Megan tried to speak but couldn't. Leslie read the plaque on the bench, and tears flooded her eyes. It read, In memory of Charlie Bennett, the greatest miracle of all is the love of a true friend. Jim pushed Megan to the front of the line, and someone handed her a microphone. She welcomed the runners to the first annual Charlie Bennett Scholarship Run, then paused. I didn't know if she could get through the few words she wanted to say. Many of you know that I am blessed to be here today, she said. But I am more blessed to have called Charlie Bennett my friend. She paused. Let's run this for him. She fired the starter's gun into the air, and the runners took off. We wound our way through town and into Bryan Park. Leslie had pushed Megan to the spot where we had positioned Charlie's bench earlier in the morning. They sat there together, watching one runner after another make their way around the lake. I ran around it several times, just so I could kiss Megan and see that pretty smile. I ran onto the path again with the other runners and grabbed Olivia's hand as the sun made its way from behind the clouds and shimmered off the water. Look at that, Olivia said, pointing to the water. Heaven just opened up, and Charlie's smiling. Somehow, I think she was right. The wind has picked up, spraying a fine powder of snow along the lake's edge. Carolers are inside the gazebo warming up for a brief concert this evening. I stabilize the bench and shine the plaque that reads, For Megan Sullivan and all who believe in miracles. I take a seat and look out over the frozen water. It is nice to see that the park hasn't changed in the three years I have been away, and the grounds are still beautiful, even in December. During the past four years, I finished up my fourth year of medical school with Dr. Getz, then went to Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland for three years of residency. I have moved back into town to take two months off before heading to Boston's Children's Hospital for three years of fellowship training in pediatric cardiology. Then, hopefully, I'll come back and work in the hospital's cardiology department for a few years with Dr. Getz before he retires. Megan went back to school on a part-time basis the fall after her transplant, but she chose not to go to Stanford or Georgetown. She stayed at the university, and when she was able, she ran for them. Megan studied education with the hopes of teaching and coaching. She will be unbelievable at both. Ice skaters laugh as they attempt to make figure eights on the frozen lake. Two little girls, who look no older than three, run from the lake and climb up on Charlie's bench. They look at me, and I see that they're twins. Hi, one of them says. Hi. What are you doing? The other little girl asks. Just leaving a bench here. For who? For Megan Sullivan. Their eyes light up. 
Our brother knew her, one of them says. He went to heaven when she got her new liver. I snap my head to look at them. They are Rich and Leslie's twins. They are adorable, much cuter than the pictures I've seen. Come on, we need to get going, I hear someone say behind me. I turn to see a young man behind me who can't be older than 14, but already he is as tall as I am. He motions for the girls to come to him. I look at him and can see the resemblance. The eyes, the nose, the jawline. It is Matthew, Charlie's brother. Do you need help? He asks me. No, thank you. During the brief time I knew Charlie, I only met Matthew once, but he was a little boy. He doesn't remember who I am. I open my mouth to tell him what an incredible person his brother was. I'm supposed to meet our parents in a few minutes, and I have to get them out of these clothes or else my mom will kill me, he says. I smile. They are headed to the same place I am. I shake his hand, and the little girls wave. Hey, what's your name? One of them asks, turning around. Nathan, what's yours? I'm Abigail, and she's Allie. Both of those names sound like the name of a princess. Are both of you princesses? I am, Abigail says. She's not. I laugh and look down at Charlie's bench. I often wonder if he ran through the gates of heaven like he wanted to. I smile. He did. I know he did. I jump in the truck and drive through town, parking at the side of the road. I run inside the back of the building, and my grandmother and Rachel hurry to fix my tie. Tears are in their eyes as they kiss my cheek. Thought you were AWOL there for a minute, Dad says, grinning. Lydia squeezes my arm. She and my father have been married nearly a year now and are very happy together. Lydia is a wonderful woman. Dad and I walk down the aisle toward the front, which has been decorated with red and white poinsettias and a Christmas tree covered with sparkling lights, gold ribbon, and red bulbs. Swags of spruce held together with strings of holly berries hang between each pew. As I pass, I smile at Robert and Kate, Dr. Getz, Hope, who is now nine and beautiful, the Sullivans and the Bennets, with Matthew and the twins at their side. The girls look at me, and their mouths open wide. I smile at them and take my place at the front, Dad by my side, along with William, who's flown in from his residency in Texas. It's been twenty years since I stood on that windy hillside with my mother. Time in the valley will teach you to be a man, Nathan she had said. I hope you go through the valley so that you'll learn how to love and feel and understand. And when life wounds you, I hope it is because you loved people, not because you mistreated them. It was a blessing of sorts, a blessing that forges love in the darkest places. There have been times, especially during those early years without her, that I thought time in the valley was anything but a blessing, but now I know otherwise. As I grew, I began to understand what my mother meant. It is those times of struggle and pain that teach us how to live. 
There were times when the grief in my life made it impossible to believe that God was alive and working, or the doubts were so great it seemed hopeless to believe anything at all. But as I look at the faces in the seats before me, I know once again that we're all here for a reason, a purpose that is often beyond us. The music swells, and I look up to see my bride standing at the back of the church. Even God's smallest plan is bigger than any dream we'll ever hope for, my father said, dragging our rowboat onto shore so many years ago. I still don't understand why God's plan couldn't include saving my mother or Charlie. I know I never will. I smile as Megan walks down the aisle, but I know that although we may never understand it, there is a plan, and though it may be traced in pain, in the end there will be joy, and it will be beautiful. We hope you have enjoyed The Christmas Blessing, an audio Renaissance audiobook from St. Martin's Press. Text copyright 2003 by Donovan Lear. Production copyright 2003, Audio Renaissance, a division of Holtspring Publishers, LLC. All rights reserved.